Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 209, Not So Much Connected. This week we're discussing season 7, episode 7 of Buffy, Conversations with Dead People, and season 4, episode 8 of Battlestar Galactica. Guess what's coming to dinner? As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. Okay, Buffy first. Um, to preface both of these discussions, these are two really good, juicy episodes that I think we will have <laughs> more than enough to say about, um, and, and maybe hopefully some crossovers between them. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if a whole lot happens in either of these, really. Um, yeah there's not a lot thematically going on or any no no real interesting writing or you know hidden talents to be discovered from anybody no um okay so we're gonna start with with Buffy um yeah and uh I'm sure you have some production notes about this one I do just a few um so first of all uh the episode is credited to uh, being written by Jane Espenson and Drew Goddard. Um, but as uh, the episode itself is a little bit more complex than that, uh, turns out the writing was a little bit more complex than that. Um, I, apparently they started off with like a very uh, thin outline to this episode and no one really had a great idea of where it was going to go. Um, and what ended up happening is um, they split up into four parts um basically be you know what becomes the main four parts of the episode and so you have jane espenson writing uh, the dawn scenes um at you know dawn at home at the summer's house and um drew goddard writing the andrew and jonathan scenes um and joss whedon actually wrote the buffy and holden scenes and then marty Knoxon wrote the willow and uh cassie scenes so um <laughs> Yeah, it just kind of ended up being, and it was, it's really interesting. They said, you know, uh, again, the outline was really kind of sparse. None of them knew really what the other was doing. Um, and they kind of just all came together. Like they all wrote it in a weekend, actually. Uh, so there's commentary on this. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't like do tons of research or something. I just listened to it. But um, <laughs> Jane Espenson said that um, she actually like, she's like, all right, I'm going to Las Vegas for the weekend and like <laughs> went to Las Vegas and wrote like her parts there. And like, they all just kind of each went to their, their own respective places and, and then came back on like Monday morning or whatever. And were like, okay, here's my parts. And they kind of like put them all together and um, saw what they did. And then of course there were subsequent drafts, but um, it, it was really, I guess, a rather quick sort of thing coming together. Um, Drew Goddard was like, you know, he says the danger for writing with um, writing for Jonathan and Andrew is that the first draft of each scene comes out to be like nine pages long. And it just, you know, like just apparently there were like all sorts of like, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and, and Star Trek references and stuff that all ended up getting cut. Um, so, you know, just kind of lots of geeky, you know, sort of mm-hmm. stuff, um, which I'm sure was really fun. Um, he talked about in in the um, commentary too about like 
being on set one day um, for like something else and like just coming across and uh, well, Danny Strong and Tom Lank practicing that that scene where they're checking the um, radios, like just going over and over it. (laughs) And like just continuing to do that, and and they both said in the commentary as well. The, the commentary has like five people. It's it's Jane Espenson, Drew Goddard, Tom Lank, Dan, Danny Strong, and then uh, Nick Mark, who is the director. So it's mm-hmm. it's a little even that is like there's a lot stuffed into the commentary. But um, Danny Strong and Tom Lank are, are like, yeah, we actually wanted that scene to be like a couple minutes long of them just checking. <laughs> They're, they were like really pushing to have like like um i don't know if you watch family guy but you ever know like how they do those scenes where it's like peter holding his knee and like going out for like a minute long and it's just like right, right, right. like over and over and over anyway like that kind of thing um but they didn't end up doing that obviously uh sure so sure. you know it sounds i mean for as sort of iconic and really i mean i think I think like if you if you think of like episodes that everybody knows, like this might not mm. be one that people talk about enough so that like if you're not you know if you haven't seen Buffy before, you might not necessarily know, but it's like certainly one I think that sticks out mm-hmm. in your mind in a first watch through, so it's maybe not quite on the level of once more with feeling or hush in in sort of like notoriety where like people mm-hmm. who've just heard of the show like have heard of those right. episodes but it's maybe that like one step down of like if you've seen the show at all and any part of this episode like it's really i think not just and we, we can talk about it even as we go through not just in the sort of story itself but even kind of in the way that it's done um and we'll talk about like the prologue and the opening montage and stuff um and some of that kind of stuff as well but um mm-hmm just kind of the way it came together is really, really kind of interesting given how much, you know, I mean, given the theme of the episode, the fact that like the writers all went off on their own and their, their own thing and then came together with this thing. Like that's kind of interesting too. I didn't really kind of think about that till just now as I was talking, but that's kind of an interesting parallel, like a real life parallel to how the actual episode works as well. Um, Notable too is this is the first episode of Buffy without Nicholas Brendan, uh, who plays Xander. And um, Drew Goddard, you know, said, uh, you know, it just seemed like it made sense to not have Xander in it because you have all these people who are sort of being haunted by their various dead people, you know, who are coming together. And I mean, not that like, you know, Buffy and Holden presumably know each other, but like, obviously like Buffy doesn't really remember him. And of course, like we don't remember him because this particular actor wasn't in, it's not like they brought back an, an old actor who, you know, this is just a guy. Um, actually, we'll talk a little bit about him too, but um, you know, kind of having these different dead people who are sort of in conversation and, and revealing things and, and, you know, interacting with the different, scoobies but mm-hmm. um xander didn't really have one of those right like there's mm-hmm. no one sort of in his life like that so it just didn't feel right and um it didn't seem to make sense to have him do that and i think you know that's fine like i think it works really well and 
there have been episodes without other of the characters, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, even like, you know, what was the beginning of season uh, six, right? Like Buffy doesn't show up until like sure. essentially the second episode. Um, so um, yeah, anyway, uh, just kind of pointing that out. Um, the last sort of production note before we get into maybe the opening part, which is kind of part production note, part story, um, is uh, awards. And it might not be surprising that this uh, episode won an award, uh, specifically the Hugo Award for uh, Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form um, in 2003. So this is the first year that uh, the Hugo Award was split into sort of a short form, long form. Uh, I, we talked uh, how Buffy had been nominated the year before um, with Once More With Feeling um, for the Hugo Dramatic Presentation Award. Um, it was it was up against really heavyweight movies <laughs> like Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, uh, Monsters, Inc. and Shrek. So, um, you know, a few, I don't know if you've heard of any of those, but um, those were <laughs> uh, some had some pretty heavy weight behind them. Um, so, you know, not surprisingly, Buffy didn't win, um, you know, when going up against those. Or maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe, maybe it is surprising to some people. But, uh, I mean, I think, we, you know, that that was really um, some strong competition. Um, yeah, right. Uh, but it did win this year when they had the first short form. And interestingly enough, it was up against both of Joss's other shows that were then currently being aired, including um, Angel, um, Waiting in the Wings, the episode with, uh, uh, well, River, Tam. Uh, what's the actress's name again? I apologize. Oh, uh, Summer. Summer. Yeah, Summer Glau. Thank you. Summer Glau. Um, and then also uh, the Serenity episode of Firefly, which uh, also had Summer Glau in it, among others. Um mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, so really interesting that there were three Joss Whedon, uh, shows up for nomination. Two of those shows were written and directed by Joss Whedon, but the one that won was not, <laughs> um, being this one, Conversations with Dead People. So, um, just kind of interesting that, um, that that's the way it all sort of played out. There were two, uh, mm -hmm. Star Trek Enterprise episodes also nominated that year that did not win, obviously, but. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, really good, really good showing there, um, for the episode, just sort of recognition of, mm -hmm. you know, the intricacy and, and, you know, themes, I think, um, that they're playing with in the episode. Um, so yeah. Right, and, and it, it makes you, what not that Once More With Feeling was solely responsible for the creation of that other category but it kind of makes me wonder if it played a part of like there was probably an increasing recognition of oh good work being done in tv that probably wasn't ever going to get recognized if it was just a single solitary episode up against like major blockbuster movies and sure um so i my my guess would be that episodes like that convinced them okay, this deserves a category of its own so that those shorter form pieces can be recognized. Sure. So, yeah. Um, and I don't know, like, I'm not familiar with the conversation around that. Um, I will say that there definitely were 
other TV episodes nominated before Once More with Feeling. Um, not Buffy, but um, so, for example, uh, Babylon 5 uh, had a couple of episodes nominated before that. Um, and Star Trek The Next Generation had several episodes. Um, and actually, each of those shows won. Um, hmm. a, 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 a couple of years for Babylon 5. I'm just scrolling through now. I don't know. And it looks like a couple of years for Star Trek Next Generation. Now, you could argue that the competition they went up against was maybe not quite as heavy. Um, so, sure. for example, uh, you have um, like Star Trek Next Generation in 1993 going up against Aladdin, which was okay, you know, maybe not the best Disney movie, but, um, you know, Alien 3, Batman Returns, you know, Bram mm -hmm. Stoker's Dracula, like decent films, but certainly I wouldn't put any of those in the categories of even, you know, Monsters, Inc. and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, so I feel like there's... I, I'm not a Star Trek fan and I can't vouch for any, you know, that particular episode or anything. Presumably some people really liked it and it won and, and that's great for that. So, um, but there's not a lot, like th those are really the only two shows, Babylon 5 and, and Star Trek Next Generation that mm -hmm. are even in contention, you know, in the nineties right. and then in the early two thousands, there aren't any others except for um, Buffy uh, right, ones the, more with the, feeling. the weed in shows, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, and then it, it it flips over into the new category split. So, right, right. Um, and yeah, I think seeing maybe some of those, like, it might have been like a combination of that, like, hey, there's some really good TV and a recognition of you've got two movies, Lord of the Rings, you know, Fellowship of the Ring and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone that are the start of franchise that mm -hmm. go on to nominate the nominations and, and Lord of the Rings wins each year that the three movies are in contention. Right, That's right. the movie that wins. So like there might've been some recognition there that like, Oh, okay. Maybe, maybe there is, maybe we do want to highlight some of the TV and also kind of moving into, I mean, I don't know when they, I don't know if they've pegged a specific date to what they call peak TV or whatever, but right, like, right, I feel right, like but it's the start. This of is the start yeah. of, of moving yeah. into that phase. And um, a few years later, Serenity as a movie wins too. So mm -hmm. maybe that's even a nod back to Firefly more than that movie itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that kind of thing. So hard, hard to say, you know, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I, again, I'm not, I don't know the t contemporary conversation around that, but I, I could see certainly that argument being made of, hey, there's some really great TV. And also we've got these movies that are likely to be dominating in the next few years. So why don't we just break it out? And right. Um, right, they've, right. they've done so since then and um, have, have had some really good contenders with uh, Doctor Who and, and BSG, uh, notably. Among them, right, um, right. And then uh, certainly uh, some others in, of shows that we like, including Game of Thrones, Orphan Black, Jessica Jones. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, some really good good stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, there's an argument against like separating different things into categories as if like the temptation is that 
one of them is the real thing and the other one is slightly like lesser like to not kind of put different categories of things up against each other like and so there's a whiff of that like well we'll create because we're sick of Harry Potter being at the top of the New York Times bestseller list we'll create a separate children's category where we'll put it over there and then normal books can go at the top of the New York list so there's there's that side but then there's also the argument of well there's a lot of interesting work that we want to get as many varied kinds of things into contention and into recognition as we can and part of the way of doing that is to kind of separate things out into different categories and genres and types of depending on length or depending on the audience or whatever um Mm -hmm. so that like more awards means more things that get celebrated um so it's probably like a good thing especially as it was heading into that like quote golden age of of writing and 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 everything in production um like tv was getting more interesting i think sure um so yeah all right okay so <laughs> so those are the production notes and those we've are only, the production we're notes. only a quarter of the way into the hour yeah 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 um so kind of starting to talk about the episode, but slightly still from a production level, um, wanted to at least mention the little kind of prologue at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, because it is a pretty simple episode, I think, that reflects the fractured way it was written, that like, you could send four people off and have them write their own little chamber pieces, and then kind of hmm. in the editing room, chop them together in interesting ways and call it an episode, like the plot is fairly minimal. Um, sure. In contrast to the BSG episode, um, which is very plot intricate, and it depends on different plot threads, uh, the timing of them working in a very specific way, whereas this is very much not like that. Um, but it's more about these separate conversations and in just at the very end of coming together and, and perhaps as the audience, you're learning something that's an accumulation of the different plot lines. So you're mm-hmm. taking something from the Buffy conversation, something from Dawn, something from Willow, et cetera, so that you as the audience probably know more at the end than like any of the other characters do. Um, but they're not interacting with each other much, um, except in this prologue. So I wanted to kind of bring that up because um, it kind of starts in an interesting way. We get, a little title card, which we don't normally get. Like, you know, something tells you the name of the episode, the date and the time even. Um, While a a band sort of tunes up and prepares their instruments, you know, in in the background. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you had a couple notes about the song and the band itself. And then I don't know if there's anything to say about that that opening presentation, like what do we make of the fact that they present it as there's a little bit of the breaking of the fourth wall there of like telling you up front, this is the title of the episode. This is the date on which it's airing. This is, I presume the time on which it aired. Like this is probably the time slot is like, you know, eight o'clock on, on November 12th or whatever. Um, yep. So kind of presenting it as right. like and, a written, and a even written like, piece of something, like reminding you, like, this is a story that we're telling. This is the time in the episode sure. and we're going to present you with whatever's going to follow. Yeah. Um, 
Right. And it's even like it's 801, right? Like 801 p.m., not even eight o'clock. So it's like not just the time of like when this episode started, but like this moment right now is 801. Right, right. You know, when it first aired, obviously. You can watch it anytime you want now on DVD or what Hulu or wherever. Um, but uh, yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, that is the original air date, November 12th. Uh, I believe that's right. The the Buffy time slot was eight o'clock and Angel was nine o'clock, at least when they were back to back. I don't remember if I know they switched days when they mm-hmm. when Angel and Buffy like moved. I don't know if the time slots moved at all. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, eight o'clock seems like that's probably right. Um, it is interesting. So uh one of the only two episodes to have that title card, the other one being, again, Once More With Feeling. Um, and I think, like that episode, um, well, I don't just think, I mean, Drew Goddard kind of says it, that um, they wanted this to feel different, you know, that they wanted it to, um, or it might have actually been Nick Mark, Mark who says it, uh, that they wanted it, they really want to emphasize sort of this is a different sort of episode um you sort of refer to it as a rock video although i mean i don't know how rocky Mm. the song actually gets but that kind of feel you know like that the opening is it's a prologue it's a story kind of in itself to prepare you for the coming story (laughs) um Mm. you know just kind of giving you all of these different situations of people being alone and and the lyrics reinforcing that um Mm -hmm. and and um, so yeah, the lyrics were written by Joss Whedon and Angie Hart, who performs a song. She's the one singing at the bronze there, um, in the episode. Um, and they, yeah, I mean, uh, actually I, I shared with you and we'll, we'll put in the show notes, um, a little interview that she did. I guess she was actually friends with Kai Cole initially, um, uh, Angie Hart was, and, uh, you know, kind of got into working with um, Joss Whedon through that. She ends up actually also appearing later on in Firefly. Um, She's in the episode um, uh, uh, Heart of Gold, where she actually sings the um, uh, Amazing Grace, I believe it is, at Nandy's funeral. And Mm -hmm. then, um, but she's also, um, I think some of her songs have, have either have or will appear again in Buffy. And um, she even um, sings like some background vocals in um, Tara's song, uh, Under Your Spell and Once More With Feeling. So um, some good stuff from Angie Hart. I mean, the song is, you know, it's appropriate in mood setting. Um, I don't know how, how much it caught beyond the show, if it was, ever, you know, anything there. But she's uh, sure. a musician in her own right, you know, and has had uh, both solo albums and then... Um, uh, her she has a band with her husband um I, or yeah i don't know at the time maybe it was her fiance or boyfriend or whatever um frente or something like that um but is apparently somewhat well known in australia and and elsewhere maybe less well known in the us but um yeah so kind of an interesting um video just sort of emphasizing though that that theme of the episode of aloneness and um you know, separation, uh, of mm-hmm. all the different characters. Um, but yeah, it really is sort of like, it's not, there's no plot 
really set up to the rest of the episode, right? It's just sort of mood set up. So it is, Mm -hmm. it does give that little different spin to it. And, and intentionally, that's kind of what they, they want you to sort of like set up a notice and go like, oh, this isn't, this isn't like all of the others. Like this is maybe going to be something a little, a little different. Um, So yeah. Right. And Buffy's Here We Go does that too. Sure. You don't know what, but that's some, that's what you say right before something significant happens that like you're gearing up for something. Um, and so she doesn't even give context and we don't know what to expect from that, but you're put on the edge of your seat a little bit more, I think by it's almost a verbal, like deep breath right before you like jump in the water or something like, okay, whatever changes in the air like here we go mm-hmm. um which kind of you know does come to be i mean that seems like in the end that we're getting the the these characters are getting their first real look at um this biggest of bads which has been kind of haunting the margins of the season so far so it is does turn out to be a significant turning point even if we don't quite realize it like until the end of the episode um sure so yeah um okay i since it is kind of plot wise fairly simple and just sort of intercuts between all these different conversations um i think it just there's really no other way to talk about it other than to go pair by pair um sure and and hopefully order them in a way that makes a certain narrative sense because i think there is um you were talking about Xander not being involved in this episode and, and I'm sure they could have found a way to make him involved if they really tried to. But on the other hand, there's something nice just about the simplicity of um, the, the characters involved and that escalating layer of knowledge that passes between them. Like what Dawn concludes at the end of the episode is different than what, you know, Andrew knows, which is further trumped by what Willow knows and all these kind of things. So there's a kind of, you know, even though they're not really done in the order that we're going to talk about them, I think there's increasing levels of knowledge mm. to use the term that, that we've used before. Um, sure. So I feel like Dawn, I want to start with her because I kind of feel like she's at the bottom of, I mean, taking Buffy aside because the Buffy Holden spike thing is different and I want to talk about that but of Don, Jonathan and Andrew and Willow who are the ones who interact with whatever this entity is um Dawn I feel like is at the bottom in terms of what she knows by the end of the episode that she really doesn't know much beyond her experience of what happens to her um there's no there's not a lot of back and forth exchange like you get with Willow later on. There's no real revelations about that. It's more that she, well, to go through the plot, she's alone at home at night. You know, Buffy is going patrolling, leaves her with money and instructions not to (laughs) buy pizza, which of course she does. Sure. Um, And, and naturally. Oh, oh, thanks for the suggestion. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> if I wasn't already in the mood, now I definitely am. Oh, um, actually, um, real quick, um, from the commentary, 
the anchovies bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Jane Espenson, who wrote, again, Don's part, um, said, said that... Clearly she, an Espenson little yes. ditty there. Well, and also apparently a big fan of anchovies. Um, oh, okay. Said, uh, talking about sort of those early Don scenes, um, I did two very important things. One is that I had Don talk about how delicious anchovies are, which is my personal crusade. And apparently this was shortly after... Um, she she didn't mention the name, but says like a popular nationwide chain stopped offering anchovies on their pizza. So she said it was her personal mission to get every teenager on TV that she could talking about how cool anchovies were, so that they would restore anchovies to their. And you know, menu. if there's one takeaway from Dawn's <laughs> little song, it's how cool anchovies are. That's, That's right. for sure. I love you more than all the other fishes. Um, yeah. And then the second one is the you know the whole pizza sauce and and saying ah oh, she'll just think it's blood, <laughs> like, like that whole. Right. But you know what's funny kind of about that opening and sorry I I totally cut you off and now I'm gonna say something serious but That's um fine. what's funny about that opening to me is that like what you see is Don being sort of like carelessly destructive right like yeah. while yeah. Buffy is gone and then like. The escalation of that by yeah. whatever it is that's haunting her, you right. know, throughout the episode of just like, oh, oops, I shot the crossbow into the wall. And then like, right. by the end, that's like the last thing. The least that, of, like, right. And, and it is a humorous undercurrent of it is like the... the the, the mundane cliche of you leave the teenager at home and she trashes the house. And it does start with like playing with weapons and spilling things and wrecking the wall and everything. And then it's, you know, there's, there's like a poltergeist. So this is kind of a classic poltergeist thing of like all the sure. electronics and the TV and, and, and there's wind and noises and knocking and all that kind of thing. Yep. And, you know, smashing all of with a baseball bat, going to all of the like electronic devices. And then, but by the end, there's earthquakes and the house is shaking and and things are falling and everything is blood just on the walls <laughs> totally destroyed that like you do for as serious as it gets for dawn by the end you do kind of relish the idea of buffy coming home to find the entire house just like completely yeah. wrecked like, i left you home for a couple of hours like I, this How is i leave you for 20 minutes and like that kind of thing yeah um so it's kind of <laughs> a humorous play on that idea of like this yeah why this is why we yep. can't leave dawn alone this is why we can't um, have nice things right this is why we can't have nice things um so yeah but then it does pass from the kind of silly and over-the-top teenage destruction into this actual terrifying destruction of whatever this this ghost or this spirit is um yeah and, and and getting more and more out of control and um just like uh, impressive by the end how much dawn um puts up with and not to not to invoke the nevertheless she persisted meme but there is that sense of like in the face of like being totally on her own and one of like the scariest kind of haunting episodes I think that we've yeah. seen like there's no monster to fight it's just like flat out trying to scare her that she refuses to leave and this devotion to her mom that yeah. like if her mom is there her mom's in trouble she will not 
leave the house until yeah. she's seen her, talked to her, made sure she's safe. And that's quite impressive, I think, by the end that like Dawn actually like pushes her way through all of this. Um, this is totally an episode that I don't I don't know how often people use it to show I mean you know me I've I've defended Dawn before right, right. and this is like like Chief the bad the badassness of Dawn like this right. is the perfect episode to demonstrate that to anyone right. who's a non-believer because I feel right. like it's episodes like this that are completely overlooked because sometimes she screams like right you know right. and is and is an annoying teenager and it's like how much she puts up with and fights through and i mean we can talk about whether she wins or, or not and kind of like what you know what the ending is you know to take away because i kind of agree with you like there's there's a sense in which she's certainly the least aware of what has happened um to her at mm -hmm. the end but there's definitely there's definitely a a persistence and a fortitude i would say about her mm -hmm. in this episode that i don't think we've ever seen with her before now mm -hmm. um well so, and, yeah. and and that her her badassness isn't exclusive from her teenageness that like in the same episode that you're talking about like the 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 crazy destruction that she brings on the house when she's home alone is also like the example of her at her strongest when she's home alone so like even the notion that she as a teenager can't be you know like one of the strong characters is sort of a bit fallacious to begin with um because right. you have these examples within the same scenes um it's not like she's she's badass in spite of also being a teenager it's like no here she is she's both right at the same moment mm. um which is yeah i think a good evidence to the contrary of being um you know the reputation of of uselessness or or weakness or whatever else you um, know, people want to want to call her and, um and yeah. just just to think of like cool fun destruction that a teenager gets to do apparently that's actually michelle trachtenberg like hitting all the stuff with an axe like you know you see it like off screen like coming down on like the uh -huh. you know stereo and stuff except the tv i guess they said that was too uh they they deemed that too dangerous for her to be the one to like actually smash the tv but like otherwise that's like her like swinging i'm just like man that would be awesome like i, I would day. totally have yeah. wanted to do that as a teenager <laughs> right, like, right 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 <laughs> Right, um, and allow her to, like, really get into it and yeah. let that kind of come through in the performance when you can of, like, getting the energy that you get from being able to just, like, go to town on the set and everything. Yep. Um, yeah, and just the increasing craziness of it, of how big, how loud, how destructive the whole thing becomes is, and, is just kind of fun. And, and um, creepiness of yeah, like the the Joyce with her like screaming mouth and black eyes with the like whatever it is kind of hovering over top of her like that's like one of the scarier images yeah. that uh, they've ever and on the couch 
right. in the clothes where she died. So you have those images are creepy enough on their own, let sure. alone ideas of her kind of pursued beyond the grave by something. I mean, so with these levels of knowledge, we have reason to doubt that this is as straightforward as it appears, that there's mm-hmm. something else going on. But Dawn doesn't really have those reasons. Like, Willow only knows what she knows because she has a conversation with the spirit that can then kind of overplays its hand a little bit. Um, Whereas this, whatever this is, if we're assuming it's the same entity behind these conversations, um, Mm -hmm. which it seems that's my guess. um, It doesn't really take that. It doesn't ever have a dialogue. It just tries to flat out scare her. Um, And so she doesn't have the opportunity to really, outthink it because it's not like a rational it's not really a conversation it's a scary thing that is threatening her mother and then her mother appears in all her angelic wisdom and tells her you know this thing about Buffy at the end and after what she's just kind of been through she's primed to believe what it says I think whether or not she will, I guess, remains to be seen, but mm. it seems to me that that's the point, is scare her into blind acceptance of whatever the ghost of her mother tells her. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, say what you will about, like, Hush and, you know, other creepy episodes, like, yeah, like Joyce on the couch, like behind Dawn, and then like her, like the slow turn, and like like that to me is like just mm-hmm. so so creepy and bizarre. Um, you mentioned the like demon thing, um, that's on her at one point on on Joyce's body. Um, mm-hmm. apparently that's a repurposed gnarl costume. Um, oh. <laughs> that they like painted, and like I don't know if like. Only because I recently saw, like, a still of that scene. It, like, happened way too fast to, like, notice. But there's, like, right. also, like, little hands, like, gripping. Like, mm. little demon hands. Like, there's, like, a baby demon or something, like, on the back. It's, like, a weird, like... Oh. Yeah, it's, like... I'll, I'll try to find a nice little oh. still for that. But... Yeah, um, no. It's, like, like... Like, you know how sometimes those things, when you, like... When you look at it, you're, like, oh, okay. I can see, like, the plastic or the, you know, whatever, like, mm. the rubber suit and stuff like that it's like nope when you like slow it down and look at it even closer it's just that much it's creepier. even scarier <laughs> it's like, like when you pause it then, yeah, yeah. um right. and well and and, and it fl- the flash is so fast that the effect is probably mostly subliminal anyway that like sure you're probably getting the impression of what's there but it's so quick that your mind doesn't even really register what um, it is um, so yeah so that yeah. that whole that whole thing is you know ridiculous and yeah i think you're right like so without without spoiling anything because i did want to talk about this like do you yet have it so do you have any idea what it is that's haunting dawn and or the others in this episode like are you do you have a guess yet because i know we've sort of brought this up in terms of spike but I'll go ahead and confirm two things. One that that they're that yes, these are all I mean, except for Holden, like who's just the right, legit right. vampire. Right. You get Dawn, uh 
you know, Don and Joyce, and you get Willow and Cassie, and then you get Andrew with Warren. Those are all the same thing, mm. entity, whatever you want to call it. And I'll go ahead and confirm that they are the same thing that Spike has seen. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing right, a right. extension there. Right, right. Um, and not to get into Andrew and, and uh, Jonathan yet, but just to mention that like they're clearly having the same messages as Buffy and team were getting in Sunnydale. Now there's a little translation mix-up. It eats you from the bottom bottom. up or whatever. Yeah, starting with your bottom. Starting with your bottom, right? And so, so there's definitely a, you know, lost in translation. Well, and 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 it brings up the question of misinterpreted prophecies and all that kind of thing. Of you know, like anyway. But but you know, there's that sense though of like they're having dreams, and so also seem to be have been being haunted or talked to by the same thing right. as well. So there, there's certainly a sort of long play going on here and it's yeah. getting broader. And maybe that means that there's more of a revelation coming, but I was just curious if you like, like with those sort of confirmations, do you have mm-hmm. any thoughts yet as to what it might be or, cause we, we haven't, we we haven't heard its name yet. I don't think, or at least if we did, I missed it, and so did you. I believe. No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, so I mean, this is probably obvious by now, given this episode and given the, the the title of the episode. But you have been asking me like, what's the common thread between all the different characters that appear, like when it appears to spike and everything? And this episode kind of suggests that the fact that they've all that they're all dead is part of it um you know uh i mean we have i don't think we've had any yet that contradict that rule right i don't don't Um, think of any no uh yeah i mean so the the um what do you call it? The cur- the curveball in there sort of in- from the first episode, right, was Buffy. So if, right, right. If, if you consider that she has, in fact, died right, twice, right. then then yes, that would be. Right, then it fits the rule. Then right. that, right, that's the, what could be an exception, but actually isn't, uh-huh. you know, maybe when you think about it a little more. So. Right, right. So kind of on a technicality, she so not dead people, but like people who have died or who have experienced yeah. it. Um, so, I mean, in terms of what it is, yeah, we haven't got a name. I mean, that's the only thing that that suggests to me is like, is it like death itself or like a, mm-hmm. a, whatever intelligent evil is behind, you know, death or whatever. I mean, definitely with Cassie, because it's more of a conversation and a manipulative conversation, I get more of the sense of it being like, if not, you know, the Christian devil, then at least a kind of like ultimate embodiment of evil, whatever that is. Um, You know, the sense with Cassie of, um, I mean, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but um, um, that just the, the sense of, 
oldness that you get from that conversation of, of mm. I've been here for so long and I'm done with it and done with the mortal coil and I'm going for the big finish and I'm going to make you all suffer. Like that kind of idea of like age and weariness and ready to be whatever this arrangement is that it's kind of done with it. And so just something kind of like primal about that. Um, sure. So that kind of coupled with the fact that it manifests as people who have died kind of lead me in the direction of like a fundamental sort of evil or devil figure is the kind of the idea that I'm getting from that. Cool. Well, again, I, I don't want to like spoil and, and necessarily go beyond what I've already said, but sure. Sure. just curious, like what, cause you know, cause it is one of those things where like, once you know, you can't not know, <laughs> like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, there's like you won't right you know once you've seen the series through and you kind of know what's going on like it's very hard like i don't i don't remember at what point i knew right or not right. the light and, bulb goes on or yeah yeah and so it's it's interesting to sort of see the slow reveal and mm -hmm. just kind of check in and and make sure like hey so where are we at um yeah. right right um and i mean so like I mean, Willow catches on to the manipulations that it presents, but again, to finish up with Joyce and Dawn here, Dawn kind of maybe potentially doesn't catch on that like this right. whole thing has been a bit of theater, right? And um, and is manipulating her, and and but she doesn't get the sense of that because it's such a kind of sensory shock and awe sort of thing she's not being convinced of anything she's just sort of presented with this horrific experience and then left with this sense of to going back to the theme of aloneness and isolation um left with the notion that when it comes down to it she's not the priority for Buffy yeah um, which is a subtle way of presenting it I don't think the the argument isn't Buffy doesn't care about you because I think Dawn maybe would by now see through that lie a little bit. It's more of a sense of she won't choose you over other things that if it comes to a choice or if it comes to choosing her friends or other, you know, loved ones or her duty or whatever it is that Dawn is more dispensable is lower down on, on that list, mm. um, which I think is a, a subtler lie. Um, okay. Let's move on to Andrew and Jonathan. Um, because I feel like moving up a level, Andrew also is being manipulated, um, is aware of the fact that there is a conversation going on, which Dawn isn't necessarily. But unlike Willow, I don't think Andrew fully comprehends the fact that he's being manipulated, that he thinks he's in on it more than he really is um sure which you don't even realize at first i mean it starts with them just coming back to sunnydale from mexico where they spoke mexican and were mexican apparently um <laughs> like that line about you died and then i became mexican um right <laughs> um and i speaking of the geek jokes i like that he 
calls it Mexican and yet understands like intransitive rules of Klingon and all that kind of thing. Um, sure. Well, they're much like, easier to grasp. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, but that's such a, I think we all can relate to that feeling of probably knowing, you know, the map of middle earth better than your own, like, <laughs> like globe geography, and everything. Yeah. like uh, that's, that's an uncomfortably relatable <laughs> idea. Um, hey, speak for yourself. <laughs> No, it's totally, I know totally, the map totally of Middle true. Earth better than um, better than certain areas of the globe, definitely. Um, yeah, so the, that's some funny stuff. But um, okay, so they're returning to Sunnydale. They have a plan. Um, we don't quite know what it is. It's sort of ongoing as the as the episode goes on. But they're breaking back into the school. They're they have a sense like you said, that something's coming and it's the same type of thing that Buffy's aware of, even if their translation of the warning is different about it eats you starting with your bottom. Um, <laughs> but they, so right, they're, they're looking for they're something almost, in relation. It almost seems more literal. Like, right, right. Like, right. This is like a, yes. Like a very right. visceral, like, oh my God, it's going to eat me starting with my literal bottom. Like, not right. not so, whereas like from not beneath the, the, devours, the metaphoric language yeah definitely yeah. sounds way more metaphorical and and right right yeah <laughs> right 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 i mean presumably this was like in in mexican or in spanish that they heard this and are, and are kind of piecing a, a very crude translation together um yeah i mean or 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 some other maybe no it, it is it's some... so um Actually, Jonathan says it. Desde abajo de Tabora. Oh, okay. Uh, so they do say and, that. And right. I mean, you can't really translate it to like it's totally a, a TV translation, like right, for sure. humor. Like, yes, it's not something you can really translate. Like, none of those words means bottom. You know what I mean? Right. Like, starting right. with your bottom. The the prepositions and stuff are completely different. So sure, sure. Um, Right, so there's some fudging of yeah, yeah. It, the language it's, there. It's definitely, you know, for I mean, it works. I like. I think it's funny, so I'm not like knocking it yeah. per se. But it's like if you were to get into actual like translations, like that wouldn't even like a wrong translation. That's not what you would get. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, fair enough. Also, it took it took me a little bit to realize what the last word is, uh, Devora. D-E-V-O-R-A, because mm -hmm. a, a lot of, um, like, the transcript sites have, like, Deborah, <laughs> and so, like, like Deborah, basically, <laughs> like, so, like, which is, you know, the, the V-B, you know, sound mm -hmm. thing, um, right. but it's just kind of, it was just kind of funny that, like, so, yeah, like, it's not even transcribed correctly, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that, uh, you know, is often right, but anyway. Um, all that to say that, yeah, like, it is funny, but it's not maybe entirely accurate, even as a mistranslation. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, or at least, yeah. uh, uh, whatever. But yeah, the... Um... So yeah, so they're, so they're going into the school, they're heading for the principal's office, which is where we know the old library used to be, right? It's right over the Hellmouth, um, and they're, and they're digging for something, some proof of something, I guess, proof of whatever they think is coming, 
um Buffy yeah they're not or, real, or they're not real I, clear I say, about what it is right that they no, what what it is that they're hoping to find um but i mean they're headed for a spot that we know to be like significant um and andrew wants to just find the proof and be the heroes and save the day jonathan's more inclined to get buffy involved like now like bring sure. in like bring in the heavy guns make make those connections work on the redemption in terms of making those connections with those people not just like present them with something that's going to get them off the hook of what they've done and everything yeah. well um, and yeah so the other thing too right so they they end up in the basement um right finding it sort of being led by the right. ghostly right. warren which right. um andrew right so that's that's jonathan. the art the other part of it is that andrew has this secret spirit guide that jonathan is right. unaware of yeah um but but one of the other things that i wanted to um point out is that like like so this is like we just had Spike recently move out of the basement there, right? And like the whole reason was that these voices were presumably irritating him more or whatever when he was in the basement, right? Like that there's a there's a sense in which like his craziness or whatever was going on there with with the voices, which we now know are you know, the same ones that all these other people are seeing were were more intense down there. Now, whether that's true or not, it seems like maybe either it has expanded beyond, you know, mm -hmm. the, that sort of basement um, confinement, or, or maybe it was never as confined as <laughs> we assumed it was in the first place. But, um, right, right. you know, there does seem to be a, a connection there, right? And I mean, we see later what they sort of uncover so like it's not maybe surprising that oh hey look in the basement and it wouldn't be maybe, maybe be very surprising we found out that was immediately below yeah the mm -hmm. the principal's office right like because that's where that's where kind of all of the central hellmouthy stuff was going on um mm -hmm. so yeah i mean again just sort of pointing out that like like there's this connection specifically to the basement and the voices and whether the voices are getting stronger and are reaching out more or whether there's mm -hmm. you know what's going on there still seems to be something significant there and that's mm -hmm. that's what they're you know that's what andrew via warren's ghost slash evil thing is leading them to you know find mm -hmm. and and yeah, yeah, maybe it isn't a good thing that they've uncovered this massive seal right. of some kind. <laughs> right, right. Um, right, right. And and yeah, sacrificing Jonathan in the in the process in classic fashion just as he finally I mean, I don't know that any enlightenment is ever really final with Jonathan. He was kind of a um two steps forward, one step back kind of, kind of guy with his like moral maturity. Sure. Um, but it, you know, there is that poignant conversation about, uh, I just, I'm interested in the people that I knew, even if they're not interested in me, that's a level of contentment that 
we maybe hoped that Jonathan would reach one day of not caring what other people think, um, just mm -hmm. caring about people and not necessarily staking your life on your reputation and your ability to kind of impress everybody. Um, and, and naturally then it's time for him to die. <laughs> like as sometimes happens in these stories, it's like when you reach your, your fulfillment, like when you yeah. finally find that, learn that lesson, that's your journey's over. I mean, whether or not that's the end of his journey, obviously we, sure that's entirely possible that we will see him again. Um, well, but I mean, there's an appropriateness <laughs> to. <laughs> the kind of end of a character arc there as, as that's Drew, being kind of fulfilled as drew goddard says in the commentary when you die you actually get more screen time but <laughs> exactly it's um, like it's yeah, like I lost mean... like yeah like like dying means like you show up twice as much as before you ever uh lived. yeah no so but it, it does remind me of lost in that way of like yeah. When your character resolves the conflict, that's the end of the arc. Like that's the end of your So I feel like with Jonathan, even if we see him again, there's a kind of fulfillment of a lesson that he finally learned and and you know, maybe it's just words, maybe he'll he would be a coward the next time it came to it, but it seems like there's some connection there between him finally kind of being okay with being who he is and being interested in other people. And then that's when Andrew stabs him in the back. Yeah. Literally. Um, and Andrew's continu continuing like fawning over yes, Warren and right. seeking of his approval and even thinking like, oh, death is part of the plan and maybe it'll be cool if I die and then I can be with you. Yeah. And, like, yeah. do you think Willow could kill me too? Which is right. interesting given Willow's conversation, which we'll get to. But, like, yeah, like, there's definitely that thing of of Andrew still has some worshipfulness over Warren. And, and, and yeah, that whole, like, even to the point of, like, quoting Star Wars, right? Of, like, if you kill me, I shall suddenly, you right. know, she'll become stronger than, man, I should know the quote better. But um, then you could possibly imagine. But yeah and but i'm totally oblivious to the fact that maybe it's not warren um sure like buys it hook line and sinker oh yeah this is warren this is this is his plan he's he has knows what he's doing has been in, in control all along yeah. um so like that's what i mean by he's more aware of dawn that there's maybe more going on but not he never catches on like willow does that like the that the spirit might not be what it says it is. Right. Um, and that he's being completely duped. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and you, so, I mean, obviously there's like, you know, the sort of Christ-like over the pentagram, you know, like, you know, scene there with like the blood spilling, the CGI blood spilling out, <laughs> um, which looks kind of weird, but you know, anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, you get the sense that, like, that's, that was the moment, too. Like, that's where Warren, it wasn't like, it's not just, like, killing Jonathan was okay. It was, like, it had to be in no, that spot. this and is like, a blood sacrifice like the blood to there, do something. Yeah, yeah is, yeah. right, it's going to affect right. somehow. Um, right, some there's, sort of so releasing on, or, or resurrection or whatever it is that they're trying to do. 
It's also notable that Jonathan dies in a Jane Espenson episode. Aww. Uh, which, so <laughs> Drew Goddard says... But um, she didn't write his right, scene. Right, right. Well, this is the thing, right? So Drew, Drew Goddard wrote the Andrew and Jonathan scenes, and he said um, he was the first to hear that Jonathan was going to die. And so he goes, he's like, well, we can't tell Jane. <laughs> so they came up just for her initially with an alternate ending where like Jonathan escapes in a hot air balloon and like <laughs> flies away. Oh my God. And, and, um, and then obviously like that doesn't happen. And so then like, that was their, the, their next explanation was, well, in the Whedon verse, you know, when you die, you get more screen time and, you know, right. um, right. we're sending him off kind of, and, and like you said, actually Danny Strong says in the commentary as well, that he, he just loves how they were actually able to bring him in a full sort of character arc. Maybe, yeah, it was, like you said, two steps forward, two steps back. But, you know, to go from sort of this victim of the week character mm -hmm. that he started out as to, to bring him, you know, sort of full circle into um, someone who at least thinks that he's doing the right thing. I mean, it turns out he's totally not doing the right thing, which is also kind of Jonathan-esque, but like, mm -hmm. but at least is like trying to do the right thing and for the mm -hmm. right reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And like you said, like even his impotent, like, like it's almost his friendship and loyalty in that instance to Andrew that brings him down again. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's his willingness to like let Andrew be the leader and not sort of go with his own moral compass <laughs> and go get Buffy right away that mm -hmm. that is his, that ends up being his own downfall. And I mean, obviously that sucks, but it's hard to say that that's an entirely bad thing mm -hmm. because there is a loyalty aspect to it. There is a noble aspect to it. Even if it's like, Oh dude, can't you just be your own guy for once? Like, and not right. follow it's, the it's, other it's, person. <laughs> it's naive, but in a kind of endearing sort of way sure. of, of he hasn't like, not that he's been a totally good guy all the way through, but he's not like he never became like a scheming, yeah, like completely depraved villain. Like there was always that sense of he just wanting to belong somewhere with somebody sure. and be part of a group, part of a friendship, you know, be accepted. And maybe it is that willingness to let other people kind of tell him what to do for better or for worse. Yeah. That is like. A bit admirable, but also his his weakness and his yeah. downfall too. And and even you know thinking back, like yeah, like I mean, it sucks that he was part of the trio to begin with. But like, there was a point too where like when he did try to stand up against Warren and stuff, like he kind of ended up getting forced back into things, you know, with the threat of violence. And he's ultimately what who tells. Uh, Buffy, you know, how to how to get right. rid of Warren's power. So like there is a sense of like when push comes to shove, he he will ultimately sort of come beyond that. And it's like if if he could just have learned to have done that like sooner. <laughs> like it's right. not like like he'll he gets there eventually, but it's just that this time it was just a little too far away and he was a little too willing to, you know Yeah. Go with right. Andrew. Right, didn't want to like push the point with with Andrew. Right. Um. um yeah. So you just yeah you just kind of wish that like he could have taken that extra 
extra mm-hmm. step and just been like, you know what, I'm going to tell Buffy no matter what. And I mean, he might have still died, but maybe you could have been a little like more supportive of him. And right. and at least right. maybe it wouldn't have been on this pentagram thing, which again, like. Right. He might have blood, gone down with a fight rather than stabbed in the back. Blood here seems like yeah. a bad idea, maybe. Like, yeah, almost no, seems like is, there's. This is probably not good. A spell or something going on, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I think this is not, not good for anybody. Um, um, yeah. Well, and, and I, hey, I mean, we have a bad guy that's manifesting itself as dead people so um andrew or jonathan definitely has some opportunities to come back in the near future i wasn't going to mention that but since you said it like yeah like yeah bad guy who appears as dead people Hmm, who who just died like yeah um maybe maybe jonathan will maybe or at least maybe danny strong will appear as yeah an evil spirit posing as jonathan right right (laughs) Um, so yeah okay all right we should keep uh move along on here yeah um okay willow and cassie um which is the most like just unambiguous conversation that we get like there's really no action at all it's like literally the two of them sitting yeah on either side of a table in the library so um, just talking and yeah can can we talk about the pairing real quick first yeah um and i want to talk specifically more the actress than the um characters uh totally was the plan to have amber benson return as Mm -hmm. uh tara or as this being posing as tara um the i think you know i mentioned before that it was sort of sort of a rush job on the script um and and they came in with like their drafts like two days before shooting and basically just in the time allotted Amber Benson already was scheduled for stuff and, and wasn't able to do it. So they had to um, rewrite again with uh, whoever they could think of and who was available. And it turned mm-hmm. out that uh, Azura Sky, who plays Cassie um, was available and um, kind of was, you know, a, a sort of happy mistake, I, I think. And, and, mm-hmm. and, I mean, it's always hard to tell in the commentaries, like, are they just saying, oh, uh, yeah, it was it was good that it ended up this way, like sort of patting themselves on the back a little maybe. But um, mm-hmm. I, I think it actually came out really good. And um, as Drew Goddard says, it, that it's kind of in a way creepier that it's like mm-hmm. Tara talking through Cassie, mm-hmm. which, of course, we learn is is false. Like, that's not what's mm-hmm. really going on. But but through most of the episode that's what we think and willow thinks is happening and there's sort of a like the disconnect of that makes it even more like disconcerting than if it were just sort of tara and willow talking to each other right so um there is there i I think it works really well i like i mean both azura sky and um allison hannigan have great facial expressions and Mm -hmm. like the range of emotions that Willow goes through in the mm-hmm. episode, I think is just, it's just crazy to think like, you're just saying like the confusion and then the sadness and the happiness. And then like the realization and like anger, like at the mm-hmm. end, like, or yeah. maybe anger is too strong even, but like the, 
resistance that she is like just really like every scene is like a different emotion that she and not just like you come back and it's like oh new emotion but it's like the transition from emotion to emotion is really really great and i think i mean cassie is really good at portraying like a sort of empathetic person Mm -hmm. but i think at the end there where she starts to like give that little grin and like Mm -hmm. talking about like the suicide like just that's like just well done (laughs) like and how she portrayed all of that because that's just like really really well done I thought um right right but anyway well yeah and the fact that like I said there's no real action it's just them sitting at this table allows the actors to really show what they can do with no no cutting away, no, you know, movement or props or need to kind of look at anything else. It's just their performances. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, when you get kind of good actors and just kind of plunk them at a table um, and give them really good dialogue, you know, kind of let them do a little theater piece and see what they can really do. Um, and, uh, I mean, definitely we knew that Willow, you know, Alison Hannigan was capable of that. Um, but yeah, I think they found a good match for her in, in the casting, even if it wasn't their first choice. But I agree that like, it does kind of help it in a way because I was thinking like, on the one hand, the fact that it's this reported conversation, that it's, it's Cassie saying what Tara is saying is in the one hand kind of a tip off that something's not right. Like if it's really Tara, why wouldn't Tara come herself? The fact that it's this, oh, he, you know, she said this and like, is maybe your first clue that this is maybe something you should distrust. Um, But at the same time, I think it adds a level of believability to Willow because she's able to use it as this, well, Tara can't come because of what you've done. And it adds this layer of like guilt into the conversation of, well, you can't see her because you're this horrible person who's done these awful things. And maybe you can see her, but only if you kind of do what I tell you. Um, And so in that way, it kind of like makes it a little more believable, I think. Like, if Tara just showed up and started talking about how Willow should kill herself, maybe that would be a bit too, too much. You know, the fact that it's Cassie saying, Tara's on the other side, she's happy, she's okay, she can't come to you because there's rules, but, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe the best thing would, the way to get around these rules would be for you to just sort of take yourself out of the equation, because then you can see her and then you don't have to worry about what you're going to do down here and your friends will be safe and you're not going to destroy the world and all these things. Mm. And that has a, like a layer of like believability to it that I don't know that will or Tara herself would necessarily have on her own. Sure. Um, so, I mean, obviously by the end, like I said, she does overplay her hand. She says, a little she goes a little too far with urging suicide in a way that doesn't that rings the alarm bells for willow mm-hmm. but for like most of it she's totally buying it no problem yeah um yeah you know so yeah i think adding having it be cassie 
kind of does add all these other layers that maybe just as Tara herself, it might be more rawly emotional with Tara, but I don't know that it would be quite as like subtle and interesting necessarily um, as when it's with Cassie, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, and just hearing like Willow talk about the the hole that she feels that isn't getting better with time, that like, other than kind of in her recovery episodes with, with Giles, she hasn't really talked much about like her grieving process and everything. Mm -hmm. She's more just trying to move on and hold it together. So it is pretty sad to kind of hear her start yeah. to talk about that. Um, right. Like, and, and the difficulty says, like, of that. Yeah. yeah. Every day it's like a giant hole and it's not getting better. Like, yeah. Right. That... And the fact that it's not getting better that, right. yeah. Um, yeah. And, and there's that sense that probably she can't talk about it too much because that probably would not help with the moving on and the, and the recovery process. But at the other, on the other hand, like clearly she went through traumatic things at the end of the last season and there's that those don't just sort of go away that right. it, and that this well, is a continual struggle for her. And, and I would say like contrasting that with the, you know, basically the, the, uh, therapy session that Buffy has with Holden, mm. like, there is a sense that actually, yes, talking about it would help her move on. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there is that idea of like, you have to talk about it. Like keeping it inside is just going to make you right. hurt more and it's going to let right. the pain build. Um, yeah. I, so one of the other things that sort of in this round of rewatches for me that um, kind of jumped out is the personal nature of what, the creature being entity whatever knows about mm. like the the intimate knowledge of willow and tara's relationship because with with dawn it's it's just all scare tactics right and like right. even like the stuff that like joyce quote unquote sends it says at the end are just like kind of generic things like oh you know yeah. buffy's not gonna like you can't trust her or she's going to like turn on you or whatever it is that she says actually. Mm -hmm. um, and with Andrew and Warren, I mean, it's Andrew and Warren. So it's like whatever Warren, the, the Warren ghost knows, you can imagine like Andrew has probably just told him because like there's right. complete Andrew's sort not of that like hard to read. Yeah. Trust yeah. there. But with yeah. Willow, it's like, it is that sort of like uh, huckster, you know, snake oil salesman thing of like, I know enough about your relationship with your significant other to like hook you. And even, mm -hmm. and, and like with this though, it's like, it seems like this person really does know stuff. Like it's, mm -hmm. and you know, you think or Willow thinks for most of the episode that it's, because Tara's feeding her this information, right? Mm -hmm. And but it's like secret things, like things that they only said to each other, like about Willow being in Amazon, or you know, um, just kind of like those private moments that nobody else, even like Buffy, would know. And realizing that, like, somehow this entity who doesn't, well, 
I mean, maybe it has access to Terra's. I guess we don't really know if it has access to Terra's thoughts and whatever. But, like, we come to learn that it's not, like, Terra feeding information to Cassie, right? That is some sort of other creature has this sort of information. And so then it becomes a question of, like, what else does it know? And, and where is it? And how present is it in sort of all of these mm-hmm. people's lives? Uh in knowing this level of, yeah, intimate detail. Right, right. Um, so right, yeah, the I things about yeah, you're right. The Amazon and and the fact that Tara sang for her and all these sorts of things that right. are like those those intimate relationship details that it brings as a kind of uh, to to give that that layer of authenticity and, and intimacy. Yeah, and and not only that, but knows. I mean, kind of among the three of them knows sort of which forms to that would be most upsetting for them, right? Like it knows how to approach, it knows that approaching Willow, like Willow's skeptical and kind of scientific and magical. So like taking into account all of that, like, yeah, maybe, I mean, we know the real life reasons why Amber Benson didn't come, but like sort of reading the diegetic reasons into it, right? Like, like it, you could see it sort of reasoning like, you know, I'll come to her as someone she doesn't really know and who can act as sort of this medium mm. between Tara and her and kind of feed her this information. And so like you can see that being like for someone who's kind of a skeptic and turning her into a believer to get her to a point where she does something that, she, you know, whatever that, she, you know, I mean, kill herself like well, now if this is an evil thing, like, what can we surmise? That it clearly sees Willow as a threat of some kind. Right, right because before it gets to kill herself, the kind of plan, you know, second second best solution is don't use magic again. Which right. is clearly, like, the best argument for, like, Willow, you keep doing that magic, you know? Because, right. like, here's the bad guy who's trying to convince you that it doesn't matter if it's white or black or good or your motivations none of that matters you cannot use magic at all ever again um yeah so yeah like that's a pretty good argument for willow staying the course and and continuing with her training and her recovery and whatever else she needs to do and you know that it is she's enough of a threat to try to prevent her from using magic and if it can get her like off the board altogether as a player um so yeah yeah so that actually kind of even though she says like oh i'm not strong i'm not an amazon i'm just me that's the biggest uh evidence we've had for how powerful willow must be to you know have the 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 bad guy take this approach with her Um. so yeah I mean I don't know that we need like I mean there's a lot of the conversation but like a lot of it is just that sort of sharing of the intimate details and sort of the mm-hmm. back and forth um, yeah and any other sort of like thoughts about kind of where they end up and, and I mean you know also very creepy the sort of inversion of the mouth and like right yeah Right, right. Which, like, yeah, the mouth that keeps 
swallowing her from the inside, kind of like it yeah. opens, and then she kind of swallows herself. That's like very creepy. Yeah, kind of echoes the the from beneath you it devours idea of like it almost. Sure, I hadn't thought of so that. Like she yeah. almost kind of like eats herself in a right. I don't. I mean, I don't know if that you can call that eating. She swallows herself. Um, yeah. But like the the smile that kind of splits in half that was very creepy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and once once the the once she's caught, she drops the the pretense and then just kind of goes to to back to the more the scare tactics of threats of you know this is what I'm going to put you through and everything. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So let's go on to uh, Buffy and Holden because Buffy is the only one of those pairs that is having a conversation with a dead person, but not with the this evil entity, but with you know, mm-hmm. just a regular old dead vampire um, who majored in psych and knew her from high school and so yeah it does turn into psych 101 as she calls it of like it is this little psychoanalytic (laughs) therapy session about even when she's like laying on the tombstone like almost like a psychologist couch yeah 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 yeah. right 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 um yeah and yeah and so the fact that it is like someone from high school like I think we've all had that, or certainly I have, of where you meet someone who you knew, but you don't quite remember, like, if you, like, you know them from somewhere, but do you remember the name? You're trying to put the name to the face, that whole thing of, um, he remembers her much more clearly than she remembers him. I mean, she has her excuses as she goes over. It's not like she wasn't very busy and distracted in high school. She wasn't making a ton of intimate friends outside of the, the the small circle and everything. So it's not necessarily uh anything personal with with Holden, but um but he at least knew her like by reputation and everything. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um and I mean now the knowing that Joss wrote those scenes, you can see that the the quippiness of the banter and um sure um you know the kind of oscillation between threats and fighting and him kind of attacking her when her guard is down and and all these things kind of jumping between that and the more light-hearted banter and everything is is funny and and kind of feels very very Whedon like. Yeah. Um so actually, you know, and, and like the, the understatement of of oh uh, like uh, oh it's it, you know feeling good, like I'm connected to an all consuming evil, it's gonna suck the world right, into right. a fiery oblivion. How have you been? <laughs> or and, like you know the, yeah. the like well not my God because I defy him and like all of <laughs> Right, you know? right, right. Um but like Right, the like flippancy of of the way that Holden talks about his own death and soullessness and damnation and all these things that it's it's very kind of light and sure um, yeah also interesting because i feel like it gives like an idea that maybe there's like more of a transition period than we've seen like before like 
like he's you know he's learning to be like well i you know uh, i'm diabolical or well I, at least i hope to be someday like you know it's yeah, that idea yeah. that like yes there maybe there's still more you know we've learned right. before that there's like certain aspects of the individual's personality that remain mm-hmm. in the vampire and so like right. maybe you know maybe there's a little more um yeah like maybe maybe there's a little while longer for the vampire part to take over for you to learn you know mm-hmm. what exactly that means so i kind of like that um and and i'm here to kill you not to judge you like, <laughs> right like judging is worse than killing but right. like killing is what he's supposed to do but like the worst thing he could do right he really still has like, that sort of like psychology right you right. know uh right. psychologist like aspect of like i'm not yeah. i'm not here to judge you just listen like i'm just here to right. kill you but right not right. to judge. um well yeah. in the way in that like judging is worse than killing almost that like right. killing she can handle it's all this this introspection that's really painful like fighting the vampire is the easy part it's this self-examination and and coming to hard truths about yourself that is the more uncomfortable and painful part of the process and everything. Yeah. Um, And in some ways it makes it creepier. The fact that he is so flippant and, you know, in some ways kind of fun and engaging and charming, but then just when you get comfortable is when he attacks you. Like in some ways that makes the evil even a little... Like, if he's just a monster trying to kill you, that's very straightforward. Whereas right. it has the charm and the, um, I don't know, I guess kind of like Cassie, the more manipulative aspect of it, which makes him a little more dangerous. Sure. Well, right. So, like, that's the thing. Like, when she starts opening up and then, like, he sucker hits her with an urn, like, and, and she's like, well, I'm going to kill you just a little bit more than usual. And he's like, sort of like, oh no, we had a moment, <laughs> like, <Yeah>. okay, <laughs> like, yeah. There's kind of a, a weird, uh, I don't know, um, I don't even know what to go on with that. But like, um, can we talk about the actor real quick? Because like, yeah. before I forget, so um, played by Jonathan Woodward. Um, so he's uh one of those actors who pops up in a number of Joss Whedon uh, episodes of different shows. So um, I'm actually not sure which, so this aired actually before the one that I was more familiar with, which is um, the message episode of Firefly. Mm -hmm. Um, So this, uh, as we know from the opening title card uh, aired on November 12th, 2002 um, that episode of Firefly didn't air till July 2003. Mm. Um, so quite a few months later. Now, that does that mean... I don't know what that means in terms of filming. <laughs> like, which mm. one of these was... Right, especially because Firefly was, like, done out of order and delayed right. and all that. So. Right, so I don't know right. which which of these was, like, cast and, and filmed right. and all of that first. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they, you know, the, the casting for this, they just said, oh, you know, he's the perfect Holden. And, and so brought him in. Um, again, he also played in that Firefly episode. We'll also see the same actor in Angel uh, in an mm. upcoming episode or two. Um, mm. So I, you know, won't give away any details there about when or, or what capacity. But 
um, one one of the one of the few to appear in all three of those shows. Um, we we've already seen Carlos Jacot um, or or Jackot or I'm not sure how to pronounce it, um, who appeared um, in all all three of those. Uh, so he was the um, Alliance guy in the Serenity episode. Uh, Lauren mm-hmm. Lawrence. <laughs> I always I always love that uh, love that scene with him and and uh uh jane where he's like well i can see you're not you know, lawrence. Uh, yeah. i can see you're not stupid he goes i wish i could say the same for you lawrence right. <laughs> that's like my favorite line um right oh yeah no i know that guy i can think of his face yeah and yeah. so he's he, kind of like a weaselly little guy yeah so he was in buffy as um in in the ann episode at the beginning of season two when she's in la that's right yeah. Um, yep. And then right, uh, like the the cult leader kind of yeah. Yeah, like right, like and then it's like she takes her like is taking people to a hell dimension and right. they grow right. old seemingly overnight, but it's because they're like mm-hmm. spending hundreds of years anyway. Um, and then I I forget I forget exactly um what he plays in Angel, but we we've seen him already in one of the early seasons of Angel. So, mm-hmm. um, and then another one, Andy Umberger, uh, who. I'll be honest with you, I can't picture him off the top of my head, but he uh, he also appears in all three. Uh, oh, uh, De Hoffren. He, he plays De Hoffren. And oh, he okay. also plays, um, you know, I think other, like, demon-y kind of guy in Angel. And then he appears in Firefly. But again, like, because of the makeup and stuff, I'm not sure if uh, he's recognizable <laughs> in that. Um, mm-hmm. as, as at least like that, we would notice, um, I would have to look up and I didn't do that before, uh, yeah. the episode here. So, um, one of only a handful of people to appear in all three of those episodes. Now there's other people who've been poor, who've appeared in more Joss Whedon stuff. Like if you count like the movies and stuff, um, Amy Acker, I think has the record of like appearing in like five shows and or <laughs> movies, but, um, anyway, just to kind of show, um, right, right. and you know apparently they he fits well within the sort of weed verse and um mm-hmm. has a good sort of uh and and i like i mean i think he does well here um i i like him in uh the message as well so mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. We'll, we'll we'll revisit him later with angel but um just yeah. wanted to sort of well and there's out. there's i mean not a huge amount of overlap in terms of the characters but um the one being that I think you pointed out earlier about um, uh, everybody feels alone until they die, and that kind of being resonant yes. with with the, with the message of of that idea of you needing people to carry you at the end and everything. Yeah, um, no, that's true. But, you know, and and they're so like, I mean, I think we don't have to like and, beat the beat the horse here. I think this will be an ongoing thing, but kind of for Buffy hammering home that message in the final season about um reaching outside of herself and and she maybe is alone and maybe feels alone but does she have to feel those things and 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 everyone is alone in a literal sense but does that mean that you can't forge connections with people and and you know mitigate that loneliness somewhat yeah. and it's interesting the way that holden presents death as the ultimate connectedness which is kind of interesting um like that like he's the one who's connected to this this higher purpose even if it's evil at least he's connected um whereas 
life means that Buffy has to kind of soldier on in her own self and everybody does that even if you make connections with people ultimately you're responsible for your own life and decisions and you know that you're never really gonna nobody ever really gets a higher power telling them exactly what to do all the time um so aloneness is kind of part of the the deal of being alive um you know which is kind of what the the whatever the entity is offers willow too like oh you feel alone well if you die you can be connected to willow you know she offers her the connectedness of of death in that way which is creepy and you know yeah for people that feel alone in their lives that's a compelling message you know sure sure <clears throat> um i hadn't drawn that parallel with you know, that episode, the message necessarily, I actually, I more poignantly drew it with, um, out of gas, uh, in which Mal literally says everybody dies alone. <laughs> so like everybody feels alone, everyone dies alone, like very, mm -hmm. um, similar sentiments there, but yeah, no, I think you're right. Like that idea of finding someone who is, you know, about the connectedness of finding some, you know, when you, when you can't walk, you find someone to carry you, right? Like, that mm -hmm. that whole idea um and I'll, and notably that episode is written by joss whedon and tim minear so very you know not not too far to think that um yeah. you know there's some stuff there. and and i think i mean we've talked about you know when when do things go bad for the scoobies it's when they're not together right and right. here it's it's physically not together um we've talked about it when they're not sort of ideologically or, or, you know, philosophically or whatever together. But like here, it's also that they're physically separated and don't have the support of each other. And um, you even get like Dawn, like technology is supposed to help bring us together. Right. And Dawn tries right. calling Buffy and her phone is knocked away off into the graveyard somewhere. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, very interesting. And so actually I wanted to bring that up when we we're talking about Dawn too, because like, why does the thing go away? Like, does, it it doesn't seem that, like, if if we're assuming that the Joyce at the end is also uh, this entity, mm -hmm. then it, it's not like her spell works. Like, she mm -hmm. thinks it works, but right. it doesn't. Like, right. it's toying with her because it still sticks around. So why does it right. choose to leave then? Maybe because right. it knows that Buffy is going to be home soon because she just killed the vampire. Like, mm -hmm. so may, or maybe she, like that, that's going on in parallel with Willow's conversation. Once Willow realizes maybe the thing knows that Willow's going to be rushing home soon. And right. so like, right. so, so like that threat even of being together and connectedness might, you know, present a problem for it. Um, right, it can take them on separately, but not necessarily when they're all together sharing information and and working right. as a group. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so there's there is a sense that like, yeah, like maybe there's this idea, and and a lot of bringing it back to Buffy and Holden, a lot of their conversation is around that togetherness, right? Like, even even to the point of like, 
so you meet someone, you form a bond, and then Buffy goes, but it never lasts. And it and he's like, do you mean all relationships or just yours? Like, like there's that sense of like, are we talking just about Buffy not having a lasting relationship, or is this like, is this just a fundamental nature of relationships that they don't last? That that there isn't any way to like permanently be together. And I mean, there's sort of a romantic intonations there but like maybe that's also true just of friendships and of mm -hmm. you know other types of like partnerships and associations like maybe there is something fundamental about human relationships that they that they simply don't last and i mean there's literally something true as far as like people die like you you can't always right. stay around and so like that relationship literally becomes dead because you can't have a relationship with someone after they've died but um well i mean you kind of can in the buffy verse i guess but <laughs> at least like normal human relationships you can't but also right. um yeah just that idea of like like so does that mean you don't try to have them or that you don't try to fix them when they do go bad or like those so there i guess just to point out that like yeah, I'll, again, like, I mean, kind of like you were saying, like, their conversation is, you know, about that aloneness and versus togetherness and kind of what it takes, you know, from one to the other. And, and you know, who's to blame when something goes bad? Is it myself? Is it someone else? Is it, you know, kind of everyone who's involved? Is there one person a little more, you know, mm -hmm. you know, at fault or whatever? And, um, yeah. Anyway. I guess the question is, like, I mean, we do. Well, I won't get into that. Anyway. Any other thoughts about Holden and Buffy's conversation? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm aware of how uh, long we're going on this episode. So huh. maybe we can just kind of transition sure. into, uh, into Spike and the ending, because there is a connection there of um, Buffy's teaching him about his vampire life. And, and he learns the word sire. Um, and that's right. a good little, uh, little foreshadowing of the ending when he's like, what's the word? And, and you know it, and she knows it like, as soon as those words come out, like, you know what it's going to be. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Spike, who has a soul and is out of the influence of the basement, so is supposed to be a bit more lucid now and in control and, and feeling all the, the associated, um, guilt and conscience that comes along with having a soul that we saw with Angel before and everything, um, is alone at a bar, you know, listen to the band, meets a girl, walks her home, looks, you know, um, you know, a little, little weird for Spike, but like, you know, that's like, we're coming to not think of him as a threat necessarily. And, uh, right. So just as Holden reveals this about Spike siring him, um, we get the reveal of him biting this girl yeah. um so yeah i mean other than speculate i don't think there's too much analysis to do there just because we don't really 
get too much. It's more the the shock of that reveal. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, this is recent that Hold because Holden's just rising from the grave, so this isn't an old kill of his. It's like this is within the last couple days, presumably. Right. Um, so why on earth would Spike be doing this, given his new found? Uh, state of being is the question. I I want to believe that it's you know a trick or that there's some misunderstanding or there's some piece of something we don't understand here. Um, but that might just be my wishful thinking. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, Spike I mean, had Spike had his sympathetic side even when he didn't have his soul. It's certainly possible that he has his evil side even while he has a soul. So that wouldn't quite um be what we've been led to believe, but I'm certainly like if that's the direction it goes, I'm interested to kind of see how they explain that one way or the other. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to add to the Spike character stuff or, or plot, but um, I want to mention another crossover. So the woman, um, who I don't think is named in the episode, um, is played by uh, Stacy Scowley. Uh, she also appears in Dollhouse uh, as... Mm -hmm. um, well, next to Alexis Denisoff, uh, they play a couple in in Dollhouse. So, um. well, she doesn't last very long unless she uh, pops up in the future. Yeah, I don't. Or something. We might see like her corpse or something like in the next episode, but I don't think like right. I don't recall her being like an important part here. But just just mentioning that she she does pop up again. Uh, mm -hmm. In in Dollhouse, uh, with a, a little more significant role uh, than this one. Cool. Yeah, so that went long ish. <laughs> um, BSG. Oh boy. Guess what's coming to dinner? You had a yeah, few more more conversations about death and yeah. Yeah. None of the actual people are dead, um, at least not at the beginning of the episode, although by the end of the episode, that's no longer true either. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so. Right. But some of them are dying or are <laughs> accepting death or close to it, so. Sure. Uh, yeah. Notes that Notes. you have. Notes that I have. Um, two quick ones up front. Um, Michelangeli um, wrote it, continuing his um, uptrend from some weak season three scripts. You know, this is his second for uh, season four, which I think we said um, six of one was nominated for an Emmy. Um, mm -hmm. This one wasn't nominated for anything as far as I can tell, although I like it even better than that other episode. Um, and it's certainly stronger, you know, than some of his earlier ones. So, um, kind of wanting to kind of track that. And then um, the title, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of a funny title. Like, you know, there, I don't know how deep we want to go into it. You know, the play on guess who's coming to dinner. Um, 
being about this kind of uncomfortable race relations when you bring, you know, Sidney Poitier brought in with his white girlfriend's family, you know, in the 50s or 60s or whenever that movie was made. Yeah. Um, When at a time when that was a very uncomfortable and radical idea. Sure. Um, So here, you know, it's kind of a, a funny joke on the title, but I think does get at the theme of this uncomfortable alliance and how difficult it's going to be for folks to overcome their race prejudice in order to make this alliance work. Um, you know, so kind of highlighting that that's something that's on the mind of the writers, I think, by, by giving yeah. the episode that title. I, I think we can accept that sort of broad explanation without looking at it too much deeper than that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I don't know that there is anything that much deeper than that. Right. Um, to me, I mean, I've never, like, if anybody knows of any deeper analysis, then they can link on the on the podcast or something but um and yeah i do have production notes about the music but maybe i will save that for when we get to the relevant uh part of the discussion um because i think we'll want to the production and what happens in the story probably there's some crossover there that it would be easier to talk about it in relationship to that um so the opening sort of stuff um, I don't know how much we need to get into like analysis of it because I don't know that there's too much to analyze. But like the whole, I'm going to use a word that we try not to use, and uh, it starts with C. Contrived. Yes. Um, the beginning does feel a bit unnecessary sure. to me. Like like the the shock value of oh the base star jumped and then Demetrius didn't. And there's this yeah. whole like ramp up of the fleet and jumping away. I mean, I, I guess it broadly does fit into like you were just talking about this sort of tension with the race relation stuff going on. But yeah, it feels a little like too unnecessary. Like I feel like there sure. would still be like a pretty heavy, like shocked reaction. And you could be like, mm. still get that fear if they just like jump together. And it was like, Hilo, like, no, no, this is really us. Um, mm-hmm. Which you get to anyway. Um, I don't know that we need like, like tie overrides Adama's, you know, order to shoot and like this mm-hmm. and that. Okay. Like fine. All right. And I guess that's the only thing it does is really give that moment. Not so much that Ty um, has a sense of something because we, we know that he does. It's more about like, is Adama going to notice anything weird about that? Which he almost does, but doesn't pursue Right, he like asks him about it later and then it's like, oh, okay. So it's kind of flirting with that tension, but it doesn't like become, like Adama doesn't, he, he trusts him. And so even if it's weird, he doesn't go any further than trusting what well and um, and i mean for any i mean say what you will about ty and there's plenty to say about him but like he does have good military instincts and so like like it's not (laughs) i'm sure it's not the first time that ty has sort of been like hey wait let's not do that hold up a sec and it's been like the right call and and there's no like he can't explain why it's just seemed like the right thing to do 
Like right. that seems like his explanation kind of for everything. Like, yeah, it just seemed like what should what I should have done. Right. So right. I don't I don't even know that Adama would necessarily find it all that suspicious given their relationship. Right. Um I mean, right. maybe, so it, it kind of like maybe yeah, the, like it, it brings it up, but doesn't for for understandable reasons doesn't really. Go yeah, anywhere. I mean, maybe the biggest thing is that he overrides Adama because they're so close together. But that's kind of like you compare that to like the mutiny on the Demetrius, and like that's why you have an executive officer is to bring up when something doesn't quite seem right or like when maybe there's an issue that the commander hasn't fully thought through Mm -hmm. or whatever like like it seems to work okay in that instance and so you know because of the mutual trust that they have for each other maybe but you know that's all in there um the other thing that i don't think this in any way is why it's done or or excuses the plot contrivance, but um, that makes me just laugh when I watch it is like, in terms of the Demetrius having trouble jumping, this is what happens when Gata's not at the, at, in control. <laughs> like, just like that sure. moment of Celix having to like, oh, we had a problem, we had to like reboot and start over. Just that thing of like, you know, of course, like, the, you know, things don't go run as smoothly. Yeah. So weren't they like, also like almost out of fuel? Like, when did they get fuel from like the base star or something? Because like it's, I mean, I don't think so. I think it's just that like they're on fumes. It's like it's that that thing of like when your car says you're empty and you know you have enough to get you to a gas station, but like you don't sure. know exactly how much, and you know you don't want to skip past the gas station because you might not have enough for the next exit. That's kind of how I, yeah, having enough. been in that situation many times myself more than you care to admit that's the analogy that it kind of they they wouldn't want to push it because they might not make it well because that was their bone dry but that was the countdown in the last episode was like we're gonna stay till the last possible minute and then they stayed like beyond the last possible minute so i guess i just sort of assumed there weren't more possible (laughs) minutes but i don't well they keep pushing back what they're what their deadline is um because the last possible minute was also when they mutinied and then Hilo gave them another like day and a half or whatever and then now they're like going into like the negative numbers and having to jump multiple times so yeah it's they're very low i guess that's the the point all right so the uh the upshot, though, is that, like, now they're, you know, when, once they kind of get through the immediate, uh, you know, high high alert, you know, DEFCON 5 or whatever, um, or 1. I don't, I can never remember which one's, like, the more serious. I guess 1, right? Um, so then they get into, like, negotiation mode. And I, I mean, there's a lot, like, there's a lot of intricate like interleaving of things going on here but i feel like that the bulk of the story is kind of this negotiations and then like people going off and like talking to their own Mm -hmm. tribes and then coming back and more negotiations and then like you know like all that sort of back and forth Mm -hmm. um so the first is sort of and i mean it's 
hard to call it negotiations because the Cylons are kind of prisoners now. Mm, right, um, sure. At least, I mean, maybe they've got like, you know, they're, they don't have raiders, so they can't like fight that way. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they do have like centurions and stuff. And I mean, even later they sort of plan to use them, but um, I mean, it's not like they're, a real threat to the rest of the fleet and even like like there's even like marines like always you know shuffling <laughs> the various mostly natalie like back and forth you know mm-hmm. from ship to ship and that kind of thing so right. um as far as negotiations go i mean it's it, it does seem to be weighted uh more towards the fleet which is an unusual position for them in a way too mm-hmm. like i feel like there's some extent of like coming to grips with the fact that like you're actually in the powerful position here because mm-hmm. for most of their time and most of their fight against the Cylons they have not been in this have had all the advantage, position right. yeah right. um so yeah so you get this uh scene with Natalie kind of before Rosalind and Adama and um kind of trying to talk through what's going on and and you see the power struggle there right on natalie's part in particular of like you know here's here's the plan we want to you know we'll help you destroy like the resurrection facility that will prevent all cylons everywhere from resurrecting if you that if you help us unbox deanna so that we can find out who the final five is i mean that's the long Mm -hmm. and short of it and there's some explanation that we don't have to get into because we already know it um that but you know it it is a nice little recap actually as as far as exposition goes like i feel like they do a pretty good job of yeah right like making a pretty decent recap of like things we already know but like the fleet doesn't know yet so you have to kind of explain it to them right Um, right well and it gives i i think you're right i'm just kind of thinking of it now but it gives very clear motivations for everybody of what do they want you know um like like the humans want i mean everybody kind of wants to know who the final five are and by extension the final five could potentially lead to earth which is the ultimate goal that everybody wants everybody agrees on this but like it clarifies you know that the these rebel cylons it's more about this speaking of connectedness it's more about this like mystical union with these mythical mysterious figures in their mythology um which is kind of their their motivation and for the humans it's this opportunity to destroy resurrection from from the enemy the idea like Rosalind says mortal enemies that the idea that there are enemies that we could actually kill and defeat and they won't just reproduce endlessly and always come back and always be superior numbers that it could actually level the playing field hugely and it gives like both sides like a very even though there's a lot of double dealing and treachery here i don't think it's ever confusing what everybody wants out of this situation it's just a matter of how do we achieve that that in the way that ensures that we get what we want right and also without handing an advantage to the other side Right. Um, 
So, yeah. So, I mean, but ultimately, like, Natalie, <clears throat> um, I don't mean this as a pun on Gata, but doesn't have a leg to stand on. Um, <laughs> sorry, by, like, acknowledging that it's not a pun, then, of course, it becomes a pun. But, it is a pun, um, yes. You know, but, so, it's like, okay, we'll do this and this, and Adama's like, yeah, no. And, like, sends her away, and then she's like, fine, fine, fine. Like, as long as you promised <laughs> to do what we want, then... I'll tell you the coordinates. And and presumably she does. Like, she at least gives them some kind of coordinates. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah, and don't they go and do, like, Racetrack does her recon. Like, they take right, pictures. Right, right, right. Well, so I mean, do... so, like, even, right, so that's after even right, where right. I'm talking about. But, yeah, right, like, sure. presumably she gives it to them, and then, right, like, they go do the recon, and, and it's, okay, there's something here. And, um... But yeah, like that that sort of like continuing to like lose lose ground on the Cylons part, or at least these three Cylons parts um, models, but like in the hope, I guess in the faith kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't really talk about a lot of uh, religious stuff here. But I mean, that is kind of, at least for the six, I feel like, there's definitely a faith component here of like, mm-hmm. this is what needs to happen for us to get to where we want to get to and, and, mm-hmm. you know, find out the final five and you just have to kind of believe that it's going to work out. Um, and so she gives up the coordinates to the resurrection base. And then of course that leads to the potential for the treachery, right? From on the Galactica side, you get, Adama and Roslyn and Hilo sort of not real happy about it, but Hilo's like the you know the unhappy uh, moral like conscience in mm-hmm. like every situation it seems like right like <laughs> like he's he'll go along with things, but he's never like happy about it and like right, always right. like. And actually maybe that's more Jonathan life than we'd like to admit, but like mm. it, it feels a little like, it feels like he, he always wants to like argue like the moral position, but then he's like, well, I signed up for this. So I guess I got to go through with, you know, whatever right, the order right. is. So like he never really quite gets his, his way. Um, at least, right. you know, the way that he sees it from his own moral standpoint. Um, Right. Every so often there's a line that he won't cross, but um, for the most part, he's more that voice of morality trying to soften everybody else's positions around him. Um, He's not disloyal. Um, Right. You know, he doesn't forsake his duty um, for his, for what he feels is right, except at the most extreme, you know, every, every, you know, Every so often, he never really gets any consequences for it. But you know, every once in a while, he might defy an order, or, you know, lead a little mutiny here and there. But like, it never like <laughs> he's not like. Mutiny. But you don't really get the sense of like he's not like rebellious. It's just that he has a a, a strong moral line that um, mm-hmm. you know, he may find a place where he won't cross that line every so often. But for the most part, it's about trying to temper the people above him into behaving and, and you know, waging their warfare in the most moral way possible. Sure. 
Um, you know, although it kind of strikes me that like he never he and and Athena and maybe why would they necessarily, but they never argue the point of um of destroying the resurrection hub. You know, when like this is his wife too that this is gonna affect. You know, now maybe they've both kind of they've they're living as humans with humans they've thrown their lot in with humans they're not necessarily going to abandon that for Athena's immortality you know immortality but on the other hand it's not like that's like a light decision that has no consequences for their family um yeah it's a, I guess more about the like the the treachery and the dirty dealing that Hilo is more uncomfortable with yeah um and I mean, right. So we've never seen them have a conversation about it, but like, I do get, maybe this is just an assumption on my part, but the, there is a sort of sense, I think of that by throwing in, you know, her lot with the humans that Athena just sort of is like, okay, like here I am, like, like I don't even think that she expects to be at all times like near a resurrection ship and probably isn't most of the time. So right. like I don't even know that she would necessarily right. would the point. Yeah. like expect to be resurrected. You know what I mean? Right. Um Yeah, no, I, I I pretty much agree that like she certainly is living her life as one of the humans and, and accepting, as we find in this episode, accepting mortality is like a key part of that. Um, yeah. So then you also get Ty making some suggestions in that, you know, scene, which, which certainly play a certain way once you realize he may have a stake in this, you know, in this discussion. Mm -hmm. um, he also isn't so much worried about dying and not resurrecting. It's more that he wants his, if he's going to die, he wants nobody to ever know he was ever a Cylon. Like, take that secret, fine, blow the hub, destroy resurrection, and then no one needs to know. Um, yeah. This can just be a secret that he'll take to the grave with him and, and not have to bear the shame of ever being one of the Cylons so um so you get him like supporting Roslyn you know in a way that like he wouldn't maybe normally support her quite so vocally um but he's all in on her her visions and her her leadership yeah. to kind of convince Adama to to go along with that and not even bother with all of this Deanna nonsense sure Right. So, and then he, he goes to the rest of the penultimate four and, and then they, and then they have a conversation. Right. Um, right. Which actually just occurred to me, like, doesn't Adama like explicitly say like, this stays in this room. If right. this goes to the Cylons, this is, doesn't go. And of course, and, what does Ty do? Like go straight to his new, his new buddies and, you know, tell them, tell them everything yeah no he does and it's funny because like i didn't really think about that either and 
what, you know, when he's saying that, my thought was actually on uh, Hilo. Like, like Hilo would be the weak link in this right. group. But Hilo, yeah, it, don't mention anything to your wife. Yeah. It's, it's not him, of course. It's, yeah, it's Ty who immediately, like, yeah, like the next time we see him, he's right. like spilling right. his guts to right. the other Cylons. Well, and it's like, again, with Adama's trust, I wonder if that was said for Hilo's benefit. Like, I'm going to remind everybody not to tell anybody this super secret plan, whereas he doesn't realize that Ty is actually the, the danger here. Sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I feel like we've been tracking their different attitudes towards things. So even in just that little scene, it's interesting to see the different reactions of the of the four to to the situation and this alliance and this plan and everything yeah well right from like i mean obviously ty is is very sort of vocal as he usually is about like wanting to like like keep insisting that he isn't changed and you know is the same yesterday today and forever <laughs> but like like to, to like the opposite of stream of like Sam, who's not even like thinking about the conversation. It's like, he couldn't care less. Yeah. yeah he's yeah. like thinking about Gaeta down in sick bay, learning, you know, to sing away the pain of right, his right. recent surgery. So like, right. And Sam's still like the, the politics and, and almost in a way, like what happens to them kind of doesn't matter to Sam. Sam is totally wrapped up in, like his own experience and the guilt of what he did and and mm. and the the anxiety of his own nature and all those sorts of he's still kind of in the the philosophical existential crisis of it all yeah. um and couldn't kind of care less about who's double crossing who or like what the plan is um yeah and Tyrrell I like the way that Tyrrell's just like totally resigned at this point like Oh, like, well, at least we'll find out who the fifth is. Like, that's kind of the most interesting part to him is just the, like, just, I don't know, curiosity. It doesn't even really go much beyond that of just whatever, you know, I'm going to just sit here and tinker with my, with my little devices and eh, if they catch me, they catch me. If they don't, they don't, you know, he's kind of like Sam, not that invested, but in a different kind of way than Sam. Like, I think he's more aware of things than Sam is, but, you know, but yeah. not having a lot of anxiety about it, like Ty. Right. Um, so, okay. Um, sorry, just trying to think of where to go from here. Cause like, Jumping back, so so you get then sort of the parallel meeting with the Cylons, not the penultimate four, but the ones that are already known. Um, mm -hmm. The two, six, and eights, is that right? Right, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you get sort of the, the, oh, there's no way they're going to like do what they said, so let's, you know, come up with this plan to uh you know screw over the humans basically mm -hmm. um 
which is obviously precisely what the other what the humans are doing right now um right so yeah i mean their plan then is to uh you know take take the cylon uh or take the uh, centurions and sort of ambush the humans and you know do what they want anyway um and they sort of set the the plan in motion um and so i so okay so they set the plan in motion and then natalie is sort of called back to galactica to talk to the quorum um and there's some stuff with Roslyn and stuff in there but we're going to skip over that for now um cuz i don't think from the cylons perspective that really matters that much mm-hmm. it's more the experience of natalie coming back um and i mean i think i don't know tell me what you think but i think we can take what she says there at sort of face value um which isn't always true with like the Cylons when they're talking to humans, but I feel like we've seen enough of their sort of private conversations to, to sort of think that she's being in earnest here, um, whether or not the humans believe them. And so like her, her comments about, you know, in civil war, we've seen death. We've watched our people die gone forever. Like it's kind of interesting to me because on the one hand, it's very, kind of basic and almost juvenile understanding of death in a way Mm -hmm. but like it's also like because of that very sincere like you know it's it's childlike which is Mm -hmm. you know more so than childish i guess right like it's that idea of like like children the cylons aren't really used to death haven't known it for that long um and so they're still kind of coming to grips with what it means and you know mm-hmm. kind of trying to suss out like what what are the what are the implications here and the implication she states is um you know because because of the resurrection ships and and you know destructions and and being beyond the reach of whatever remaining ones they might have um she says, we could feel a sense of time as if each moment held its own significance. We began to realize that for our existence to hold any value, it must end. Um, which, you know, I mean, I suppose that's true. Like not having experienced the opposite, I can't say for sure. But like that that seems like, I mean, it's that, that idea of death as a gift, right? Um, not in the Buffy sense, but in the Tolkienian sense mm-hmm. of, um, you know, the the gift of mankind being death. And it's not, you know, that you have to sort of waste away into eternity and, you know, maybe feel like there's nothing better for you to aspire or leave to go to. Um, not, you know, I mean, that might depend on what your religious beliefs are. But anyway, the yeah that idea of um you know to leave meaningful lives we must die and not return the one human flaw that you spend your lifetime distressing over mortality is the one thing uh that makes you whole and you know so 
again, like, I feel like this isn't like, given that they've already sort of plotted and given like literal plot coordination points to like destroy the remaining resurrection facilities, not just for the, not just for themselves, but for all Cylons. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I think we can sort of take her at face value that this is being said in earnest and that, that it's not, it's not just like a simple trade of like, in order to, learn who the final five are we're gonna have to give the humans some sort of carrot to like mm -hmm. help us but that that there's actual value in that as well in the destruction of the resurrection facility and in learning to live a life that is limited and doesn't always have that sort of safety net right. um yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, uh, that speech that Natalie gives, I think, is one of the reasons I'm I'm kind of fond of that particular number six. Um, yeah, and I definitely I definitely read it as as sincere. Um, I think it's interesting that the she kind of dates their little revelation here to after the Civil War, so it's like they've they've already rebelled against they already want to be with the final five they've rebelled against cavill's way of doing things and broken with them and it's more like in the process of the fighting that she kind of talks about this kind of sea change in their attitudes mm -hmm. um towards death which is interesting like it's not like the revelation led to the civil war it's more to more the other way around um it's the, in the experience of losing people that they've come to the realization of the value of life. Um, yeah. And I think the, 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 the essay that's begging to be written is, is putting this up against like the relationship of humans and elves and in, in Tolkien's conception of the way that those gifts are, each of them sees the other as blessed and nobody's really happy with, what they've got that like, you know, that they always long to escape this kind of weary circle of immortality. Whereas the humans are terrified of not knowing what comes after death and wish they could stay. Um, you have Natalie talking about the value of a limited life, like you said, and that it's, it's the limitation that gives your life meaning and, and significance and purpose next to the dying Rosalind, you know, who like, I don't know that she's offended by the speech, but certainly to say death is what gives your life purpose. It's a hard thing to tell somebody who's like in late stage cancer treatment, you know? Mm. Um, but there's, so in some ways that could be kind of offensive to say like, well, you don't know what you're talking about, but kind of what Natalie's I think trying to say is that they're starting to understand what that means from the human point of view. Um, and yeah. I don't know, maybe that's meant as a comfort in a way to the humans and to Roslyn specifically that this thing that you distress over, um, while painful and sad and difficult, is also human and natural and and part of what gives your lives meaning. And it's not something to try to not, I mean, not that we should all be suicidal, but the, the idea of death as a thing isn't necessarily something to, to hate or fear. 
Um, sure. You know, you might cure your cancer, but in the end, everybody will die um, of one thing or another. Um, right. So it's an interesting kind of contrast to have them next to each other, each of them kind of, I think, envying the other their different way of, of being and kind of realizing, oh, maybe the other the others have access to things that we can't ever really understand. Um, yeah. So, yeah. And so I guess it's kind of in, in that conversation with the quorum that Natalie starts to change her mind yet again. Um, she's very quickly evolving. Um, yeah. Right. So, Right, she goes back, and sort of in a sense, the whole on on their side of things, the whole quorum conversation is not actually successful, right? Like, because she says like that she could feel, uh, could I, oh I forget I didn't write down the exact quote here, um, but basically said that like she could feel that like they weren't really responding well, <laughs> right? Like, like that there's a sense in which um, they weren't responding well, but like that it made her question their own, you know, treachery. Like, hey, is this really the way to build trust is mm. to like stab someone in the back? <laughs> like maybe, maybe we ought to, you know, this is the, this is the John Stark argument, right? Like maybe we should be doing the right thing, even if it ends up not working out so well for us. Right. Um, right. Lead by example or, or, or treat as we want to be treated, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So I mean, and maybe the humans won't trust us, but they definitely won't trust us if we double cross them. So that's probably not the best way to start this new alliance. Um, yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, I I mean, it's you know maybe a little frustrating for them, but now they need to like quick scramble. Oh wait, tell the centurions not to fire on the humans. Right. Um, yeah, I mean they they kind of have to scramble and, and pick up the pieces. And so, um, which is kind of funny because it's like, okay, you go distract Adama and we'll like try to get all the Centurions together and like hope they don't kill us. And like, yeah, yeah. Um, so they do that. And of course that sort of leads to Natalie's uh, fateful end. But before we get there, um, kind of want to talk through some of the Roslyn and Lee, and, well, the Roslyn and others stuff. Um, and it it is kind of hard because of the way the episode's structured. Like some of this is going to have like pertinence back to some of the other stuff that we talked about already, but it's just kind of hard to bring in every character at every juncture. So um, first I wanted to talk about sort of Roslyn and Lee and sort of vicariously Zarek and the Quorum, because um, 
it's interesting. Like now that Lee is part of the quorum, they're all sort of looking to him as someone who they believe has Rosalind's ear, at least more right. so than like any this, of them. This informant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like more so than any of they do. And so, yeah, there's this like really interesting, like dynamic playing out and like, maybe kind of predictable but like like lee sort of seems surprised by it like um yeah but you like even zarek like you would almost feel like zarek would have a better ear like have rosalind's ear better than lee would in a way but that doesn't seem to be the case and so um yeah very uh very interesting, you know, sort of dynamic forming there. But he he sort of is now their kind of go-between. And maybe it's because, like, he's the young, naive one who's willing to stand up to her, whereas everyone else, even as, like, Lee describes, like, everyone else has kind of become jaded mm-hmm. <laughs> to, like, the, the whole situation and dealing with Rosalind and the, you know, constant or at least very frequent... Um, threats and uh not just not like from Roslyn but also like from the Cylons and and everything else mm-hmm. kind of going on like they're all sort of feeling more you know whatever um I don't even know the right word for it but yeah just kind of feeling a bit more winded or fatigued by the whole situation mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, yeah, as sort of the youngest and newest member, like, it's kind of up to him to to be the one to kind of keep carrying the torch, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and kind of at the end of that conversation about, like, him realizing, like, how jaded or, or numb they are, like you said, um, you know, Rosalind kind of saying you felt their suffering now try holding their lives in the balance every day. And I kind of like how it, you know, Lee is used to being a battle commander. Obviously he's used to having lives held in his hands in, in, in battle situations, but like in a way he now holds even more lives, maybe less directly, you know, but like as part of the government, like decisions that they make directly affect not just lives of soldiers, but like the entire fate of the fleet. So you kind of see like, I feel like it's Rosalind. It doesn't excuse the way she's increasingly a bit like autocratic or whatever, but it at least like underlies some of the reasons why she is that she's carrying the burden of every life in the fleet and is trying to teach, you know, I don't know if she's trying to teach that to Lee because they've been a little bit estranged, but she's trying to communicate that to him of like, this is why I do it the way I do it. This is why I don't tell anybody anything because I'm like trying to, like Zarek said, she's trying to save everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe she doesn't always go about it the right way, but she at least feels the the responsibility of that. Right. Um, and I think Lee is starting to, even if he maybe, I don't know that he thought this would be like a cushy job, but like maybe it would be a break from daily death experiences. Whereas like in some ways it's probably even a little bit more depressing to be like at this lot, this high level of 
decision making. Sure. Right. So, um, yeah. Uh, and it is like, so, uh, the whole like conversation around like owing people a response to like, yeah, like, I mean, she's really become, I mean, if you think about like her character arc, like was very much like originally like trying to be like the voice of the people and like mm. even she like I would say her own attitudes have become fairly jaded as well like mm. of like yeah. you don't have to like talk to me about you know the security of the fleet I'm I'm someone who you know has been looking out for the security of the fleet since day one basically right like like that whole idea of there's there's not anything you can tell me about you know watching out for my people that i don't already do but there's like also a sense in which like she's kind of not anymore mm. like yeah Right, like maybe. she's maybe looking out for the survival, but is she looking out for like their real welfare? Like living is about more than just surviving. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, one of the things Natalie and the others are coming to realize that like just serial existence is not living. It doesn't right. inherently have value. And I feel like Rosalind maybe is obsessed with the survival of the fleet, but is losing sight of the 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 living people that, make up that fleet right right and that there's you know definitely um some of the things she is doing is not very i mean and this that's the quorum's concern too right is that like she's definitely reacting in ways that seem counter to what one might consider in the best interest of the fleet and and the people in it mm -hmm. um so yeah all right um Rosalind and tori so Tori find or uh, Rosalind finds out that Tori's been sleeping with Baltar, mm -hmm. and kind of puts her on notice, <laughs> and orders her to basically, by any means necessary, uh, through artifice or sexual favor or whatever, uh, you know, to find out. Uh, basically how how he's getting his information from you know about Rosalind's visions and the opera house and all of that well I guess he doesn't specifically say opera house but but knows that she's having hallucin hallucinogenic dreams uh with Six and Athena mm -hmm. um right and that uh the one about I don't care if you spend the night on your knees praying or just on your knees. Right. 
oh, like that's, you know, ouch. Sure. That's my only, like, you know, for the Rosalind Tory relationship, that's, that's not good. For sure. And I mean, yeah, like, I mean, not that like, I mean, Tori has been secretive and, you know, I mean, hasn't exactly been doing the nicest of things herself, things. right? Like, yeah. I mean, she killed <laughs> right. Callie, remember? Yes. Like, yes. like, this isn't like Tori right. is an exactly, innocent. Yeah, yeah, an innocent, you know, player here. But yeah, like, if anyone can, like, maybe help her keep some semblance of humanity, like, it seems like Roslyn could be that one. And now, like, she kind of screwed the pooch on that one, um, mm. so to speak. So, yeah, hard to, hard to, like, I mean, I don't think Roslyn is at all, like, I don't think her sentiment is at all sympathetic or meant to be. <laughs> um mm-hmm. But like, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we would hope for a little nicer response. But um, I mean, clearly she's feeling betrayed there. Whether oh yeah yeah whether Definitely. you know that betrayal is actual or or merely perceived. I mean, I guess we can discuss. But it's it's certainly something that yeah she seems to. Uh, yeah, I think the the betrayal is definitely going in in both directions here. Um, and maybe, I mean, Rosalind probably has more reason to feel betrayed. Um, you know, even if her response is a bit ugly, um, like you're saying, Tori has been keeping secrets from her and she is doing what she's accusing her of. And Tori even is doing worse things that Rosalind has no idea about. So it's not like Tori is, like you said, completely the innocent party and, and Rosalind's totally attacking her out of the blue um but yeah it's hard to see how you know given what else Tori is going through um Rosalind's reaction is helpful to that situation which of course Rosalind has no idea about um sure she doesn't realize it's quite as precarious a situation as as it is yeah, and I mean, maybe this is Rosalind's jading, you know, due to her political career. But, like, you would like to think that, like, a former teacher would have mm. been a little more. Right. It's, it's, this is a, a, a vulgar side to Rosalind that we don't normally. Uh, right. But I think you do get the sense of her betrayal there, you know, of, of like, oh, yeah. and trust me and frack that, like, it's it's you know coming from a place of deep hurt that like who hates Baltar more than Roslyn you know like sure this is this is her trusted advisor sleeping with one of her worst enemies you know maybe her worst enemy that's not a Cylon so um, yeah that's definitely the the pain of that is where her kind of lashing out is coming from. Oh yeah. Yep. No, I agree. Um. Okay, so uh, trying to 
pick it up a little bit more here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. So from, I mean, from there, uh, you get the scene with Starbuck and, um, I don't know that there's a huge amount to. Yeah, I don't either. Say. I mean, basically, I mean, they kind of share their visions and prophecies with each other. Yeah, basically, Starbuck just kind of tells her what the hybrid said, and that's where they decide, like, or well, that's where Rosalind's like, okay, well, I want to go see this hybrid. Like, how does it know more about my dreams than I do? Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I don't know that there's a ton there to talk through other than that so then that sets up the situation right so you've got as we mentioned above like natalie or previously like Nat natalie is on her way back to galactica roslyn um pulls baltar out of his bed and gets him because um they, she has this other dream shared dream with athena and Caprica six um and Baltar is in it now. So she pulls him and says, okay, we're going to go see this hybrid and see what's happening. So in the meantime, um, you've got Athena and Hera, some, some juju going on there. Um, basically like, and it's always, it, there's always that creepy thing of like, you wake up and there's a kid staring at you, right? Like, that's never, like, <laughs> right. a good thing that's happening. Right. And then, like, all she says is bye-bye. And, like, right. Right. your worst fear, L like, you just woke up from a yeah. hallucinogenic shared dream in right. which your kid was kidnapped. Um, and it says goodbye and is, like, staring over you while you're sleeping. Right. Um, right. So, yeah. And, and then, uh, and, like, the whole thing of, like, Oh, she's coloring, and on every page is like images of Caprica Six and the number six, mm -hmm. like you know, not quite demonic, but like the number six repeated, you know, like it could be right, six, like six, 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 six is everywhere, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, but yeah, like so, just some weird stuff going on there, and then like she turns around and Hera's gone, like, like you know, supernaturally gone. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. doesn't even seem like a child could disappear that quickly, kind mm -hmm. of gone. So, um, yeah. And, and so, of course, we see where she goes. Like, Athena's running around looking for her. Notably, one of the people she sort of asks is Tyrrell, like, or not asks, but, like, says, like, hey, Hera's missing, and Tyrrell kind of feigns indifference at first and then like goes after her. Um, right. Follows behind. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, who is she meet coming down the hall, but Natalie, who actually we didn't mention like right in the beginning, like mentioned Hera. Right. Right. Like, like there's the um, co brief conversation that she and Athena have mm -hmm. of, you know, about Hera and like, oh, how do you know my kid's name? And it's like, well, every, we all know her name, like, which is weird and creepy. Although it's not that weird when you think about it, because like, right, Cylons, like their only child. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like the Cylons had Hera for a while, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. So right. it's not like, like, what do you mean? How do you know her name? Like, oh, you remember when she was like our guest, you know, 
quote unquote. Right. And right. <laughs> right. And she's like this promised miracle child is like the only child we've ever been able to have you know so yeah right exactly so i mean it's, right so it's not it it maybe athena takes it later on in a creepy way but it's not actually meant creepy and at all and and it's not actually surprising when you think about it that natalie would know about her and and ask after her and everything right um but they have taken her you know taken hera before so Clearly, sure. Athena is um, sensitive about as this whole situation. A parent as might you're be. allowed to be. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Right. And and that's the thing is like Athena's. I mean, I you know I don't want to call it like uh, uh, paranoia. I mean, it is, but it's like justifiable paranoia. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's not like. Yeah, it's not like this is just sort of out of the blue. These are Cylons, and they have taken her child before. So, mm-hmm. you know, right. not right. not really like out of the out of uh, uh, out of mind that she might be doing the same thing here. But like, yeah, I mean, so okay, so there's, I mean, the standoff, right, and. Athena comes up and, you know, ha- has Tyrrell, of course. Of course, Tyrrell, mm-hmm. right? We don't want to give her to the Cylons. Hey, Cylon, come get her. No, I mean, she doesn't <laughs> know, obviously. But um, that's well, the implication. And, and, right, and so that's one irony. And then it's kind of drawing on the the old relationship between Boomer and Tyrrell. You know, not Athena, sure. but still there's that that residue of the old trust between them, you know, right. that like, he's a trustworthy person to Athena. Um, sure. Right. Cause Athena because does of his relationship with the Athena, memories, with right. Boomer. Doesn't she say it like early on, doesn't she? Right. Like at least some, some of them yeah. have the memories of Boomer. So, right. Right. Um, right. Right. But they're also, you're right. There is that irony too of, Hey, Cylon, come take her away from these dangerous Cylons. Yeah. Right. Um, and 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 Ty being like intervening to be like the one to say like yes Tyrrell come get the kid <laughs> like <laughs> um so yeah uh yeah and then Athena shoots her yeah and and I mean we all know of course that they're out of range of the resurrection ship so this is a true mm-hmm. death and and given Natalie's sort of words to the quorum you know, that has even more weight there, I think, behind it. Um, right, sure, right. The flip side being that over, meanwhile, on the Cylon ship, um, yeah. you have Roslyn and Baltar and crew being over there and trying, you know, getting ready to, like, talk to or commune with or whatever, the the hybrid. And so they're like reconnecting it and you know plug the hybrid back in and mm-hmm. immediately it jumps and so mm-hmm. which of course so then the the further irony there is that the cylons do kidnap someone mm. right um, right unintentionally yeah more well yeah i mean without knowing the hybrid's motives at least like right, right. um 
Right. There, at least the the numbered Cylons don't aren't aren't intending to do it, but they do end up doing it. And so, you know, the question becomes: Is why does the hybrid jump? Is it like there's a number of potential explanations, I suppose. Like it could be like, oh, I just woke up and I'm feeling the need for a stretch. Like, I mean, there's that sort of thing. Or there's like oh, hey, what are we doing in the middle of all these enemy ships? Right. <laughs> Maybe I should get right. out of here. Um, right. It or could be did like you suggest... Mal- it could just be a malfunction, like it, the ship is so damaged. Or, I mean, the one that I sort of favor is this murder that just happened mm-hmm. uh, could potentially cause things to go poorly in negotiations. Um, like you were mm-hmm. talking about up front, like this whole episode is sort of about race relationships. So maybe this is like for the protection of, you know, everyone, like I'm going to jump away until like mm. cooler heads can prevail. <laughs> um, right. Right. Or fear of, of, or they fear just shot of Natalie. Yeah. Holy crap. Let's get out of here. Right. Yeah, like like a, if, a reaction to the murder. Yeah. If, if Athena is shooting Natalie, then does that mean... Right, they're and, gonna shoot us all. And right, and we—I mean, we don't know exactly what the hybrid knows, but we know that like it experiences space and time differently than everyone else. So, mm-hmm. you know, how much it knows about the specifics, who knows? But maybe it can feel something sort of quote in the air or in mm-hmm. the space, you know, uh, that that is sort of putting them right. You know, well, and they talk about, disease. and they talk about a sense of like psychic connectedness between all the Cylons. So I think it's possible that she has a sense of like if something happens to some one of them, maybe she has a sense of it. I mean, it's I think all of those explanations are valid, and it could even be a mix of them. And and there's a, a, to to what extent the hybrid is conscious of it of any of its feelings or motivations still is somewhat up in the air but um i think i definitely think that there is some of all the things you you speculated there's some connection definitely between Mm. um the fact that both of these things sort of happen at the same moment and yeah and they do end up kidnapping Roslyn, even though they didn't intend to and natalie never gets the chance to come clean you know, so that's not great for the race of relations that like she never gets to tell Adama, you know, or or, you know, undo the, the plans that they had set in motion. So. Hmm. So it looks a lot from both sides. They look a lot actually more treacherous than they really are. Yeah. I mean, and so then, OK, so. The two things, and then the third thing, kind of all symbolically linked, if nothing else, is the last line of Gaeta's song, to jump ahead, you know, and kind of finish with that, is about um, having her, whoever she is, waking up. Um, So there's like, you know, all of these plot things happening at the same time, and then you have this sort of musical commentary going on in the background that's sort of giving you kind of, I don't know, a backdrop to that. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. So, um, any anything else you want to talk about Gate of Song? I guess since we're since we're here, <laughs> like yes, I feel um, like that we well, can do, sort actually. of wrap up with that. Then. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, I do have a, some production notes. I have a lot, actually. I'll try to go through it quicker. It maybe just link to some things so people can um, take a look on their own. But um wanted to kind of give some context that um, uh, Michael Angeli wrote the lyrics, you know, the writer of the episode, and then gave it to uh, Bear McCreary, the composer, to write the music. Um, and I'll link to, he actually has blog posts about the writing of it and the scoring. Um, so it's kind of interesting from a com- composition point of view to read his uh, explanation of that. Um, so the idea came from, they were at a dinner after shooting of something or other, and um, we're actually joking about doing a musical episode. Um, I think Uh-oh. purely for fun, um, probably, I don't know that that would work quite as well with BSG as with Buffy. Right. Um, it, but there's were, really not any other shows where it has worked well, so. Right, sure. Well, and Buffy can do that because it can kind of play with genre and, and spells and, you know, sure. kind of break the fourth wall that way. Whereas, like, yeah, that might be a little inappropriate with Battlestar and some other things. Um, but so the, the, the conversation brought up the fact that um, Alessandro Giuliani or... AJ, as they call him, I'm going to say that because it's easier to pronounce. Um, he got his university degree in opera. So like, that's what he went to school for was to sing opera. Um, so like, hey, like if you ever do this, like actually, like I might be able to participate in that. Um, mm. And um, he's actually, in addition to like acting mm. in various things, he's actually also... Um, a composer and sound designer himself so like not just sings and acts but also like writes music for theater and shows and does sound design and all that kind of thing so pretty knowledgeable about music from a a composition point of view too um and he had a funny quote which is it's amazing what can happen if you have a few bottles of wine with the writers and how seriously they can take you. So like you bring something up in an idle conversation as a joke, and then suddenly, you know, however many weeks or months later, you get a script under your door, which like has this whole thing built into it. Um, So like Ron Moore and some of the others came up with this idea of like, oh, well, maybe we could work that into the show. Mm -hmm. Um, And in Bear McCreary's blog post, he talks about um, this being the first time that he was brought on to write music like during filming that it wasn't just after scoring after the fact that like he was actually like involved because they need to be able to sing it on the stage. Um, He had to write it ahead of time. Um, So he and AJ would send demos back and forth to each other and refine it and change the melody and, you know, tweak it here and there. Um, So what appears on the show is recorded live, like just with the cameras recording on set. And then when they did the, soundtrack they went back and re-recorded it in the studio so there's like a much more polished theatrical version that like wouldn't be appropriate lying in a bed to kind of be belting at your highest level but like when you go and do the soundtrack it's like easier to you know kind of do a more polished version of that um and then so then the last thing kind of related to that is that when 
they did Caprica, there's a scene in one of the episodes where um, there's an opera playing in, a, in the background that then becomes part of the score, like it crosses that diegetic boundary um, that Bear McCreary wrote, and AJ is one of the singers in that. So he kind of was like, well, we'll put this opera in and you can sing some proper opera here. Um, mm. And it kind of connects on a symbolic level again of of bringing in the characters into the spinoff of even if you don't know that that's Gaeta singing it's still there's a connection to the Battlestar world and the Battlestar timeline um and so there's a couple um videos about that that I can link to as well um so yeah cool. I mean I'm sure we have some things to say about his plot line and the song itself but from a kind of production point of view wanted to at least like bring some of that up yeah um i mean i don't know that i have much to say uh as far as the plot line i mean he doesn't want to be put under <laughs> so he i don't want to wake up with my leg gone okay well they take it while he's still awake apparently um yep. so yeah and then i mean most most of what we know is actually more from sam right like Mm -hmm. you know saying he sings you know Gaeta whenever he feels the tingling whenever he feels his phantom leg Paddle says it helps him through the paint through it he sings um so yeah just kind of you know hearing him feel his way through there and then you get like the Roslyn sort of one-off you know what a way to discover such a beautiful voice you know and um yeah kind of I mean Interest. So one thing I will say too, again, most of these things we know from like the other perspectives, right? Kind of funny that when Ty comes barging into the base star, right, and sees Starbuck, who hasn't always been Ty's favorite person, um, you know, like the second thing he says to her is like, "So who shot Gaeta?" And it's like. Mm -hmm. When did Ty suddenly care what happened to Gaeta? Like, wasn't he going to, like, throw him out in airlock at one point? Like, <laughs> not too long ago, even. So mm -hmm. it's just kind of that weird thing. And not that it's the first time with Ty, but that kind of weird thing of, like, I'm allowed to hate him, but, like, if someone else right. kills him, then, like, that's my man and you don't have the right to do that. <laughs> right, right. Well, and with Ty, I kind of feel like it's less about Gaeta and more about like confirming even though he knows he's one of them confirming his own suspicions of those those dastardly Cylons like he assumes that it was a Cylon that did it now sure. it was but only right. Sam and Ty know that is the thing I mean so the the question of the fact that it was friendly fire is not really addressed here like uh, you know, and I think that's an open question of like, yeah, are there any consequences for this mutiny and and either for the mutineers or for Sam for, you know, uh, putting a kind of violent end to it? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think Ty's expectation is that Gato was shot in conflict with the Cylons. And that's not what happened. It was from Sam. Um, yeah. You know, which I mean, certainly is giving Sam some nightmares but nobody else really seems that like 
perturbed by it. It's kind of like not really brought up again. Um, I mean, and going back to the circle too, like I kind of want to point out the irony of the amount of people involved in the circle who turned out to be Cylons, you know, like so Ty and Sam and Tyrrell are all in there. Um, sure. And if you throw in kind of crazy Starbuck with her Demetrius mission, um, it's kind of like all these people who persecuted Gaeta turn out to be like, you know, at least from his point of view, he does, maybe doesn't know this yet, but all kind of, you know, not on his side, really. Yeah. Um. So, right. And then, I mean, I guess the other thing um, to, to note is the way that this plot, like, like you said, we learn about it from other characters, like people mention it, but like it doesn't really interact with anything else. And I think it's pretty poignant how there's lots of people that talk about him and lots of people that kind of hover outside, but nobody actually goes and talks to him. That like this theme of isolation and loneliness um, is kind of highlighted by the fact that like Baltar and Sam and Lee and all these people are kind of like peeking around the curtain, kind of feeling bad, maybe wishing they could say something, but nobody actually makes the step to make the connection. Um, sure. So I think that kind of highlights the, the, the aloneness of it. Right. Um, I mean, I guess the last thing too is like the, I mean, we kind of talked about the, the lyric at the end about her waking up, but the, you know, the lyrics themselves are kind of interesting. Um, I mean, I'll link to the, the soundtrack video so people can kind of, you know, look them up if they don't know them, but it's all about this, like kind of connecting with Baltar's Hamlet quote. It's kind of all about sleep and you know, waking and dreaming and sleeping and wishing and like oh, this kind of metaphor for death of like, you know, the, the, the metaphor of the sleep of death and everything. So that kind of, again, providing some background commentary behind Natalie's whole journey in this episode. Um, so yeah. All right. Well, we went way over. We did. But I mean, not unexpected given these episodes, perhaps. Um, but yeah, so next week we'll be back with some more Angel and uh, another episode of ESG. Sounds good. See you then. Mm -hmm.